This episode of the MJ Cast is sponsored by Ridiculously Delicious Crack Corn. No kernels, no hulls, easy to eat. Check them out at crackcorn.com. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and very excited to be here today for episode 131, a regular episode with a brand new person to the MJ Cast, Christina. We're very, very lucky to have you, and we're here as well with a couple of veteran MJ Cast return guests. We've got Charlie Thompson and Casey Rain from The Violet Reality. Let's go around the table. First of all, I want to introduce Velo Christina, who we'll be referring to as Christina, who is a major gifts fundraiser in LA and uh, has been in nonprofit work for over 20 years, a huge Michael Jackson and Prince fan since about 1982. Christina, welcome to the MJ Cast. Thank you. It's it's an honor, and I really appreciate you having me here today. I'm excited to get to know you all better. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely great to chat. And I, and my understanding is you're also a pretty close friend of my co-host, Elise. Absolutely. Uh, Elise has become a really wonderful friend. Um, we, we all met, actually, at the Square One premiere in Los Angeles back in 2019. And I had been listening to the MJ cast for years and just kind of walked up to her and introduced myself. You know how that is. It's so awkward when you don't know anybody in the room. And uh, there's a group of us that connected that night and have really developed an incredible friendship. And uh, it's been instrumental in getting through the pandemic, uh, just having each other and uh, we get together from time to time and um, have done things like, you know, hiking at Neverland and going to Forest Lawn and other non-MJ related things. But um, it's the connection has just been really great. And I, I can't thank you all enough for including me today. Oh, our absolute pleasure. That's uh, that's amazing to hear that that event brought so many people together. It really seems like a bit of a ground zero event in being a uh, a modern contemporary MJ fan. And I know another person at that event was Charlie, Charlie Thompson. So you must have met Charlie. I did. And actually, I owe Charlie a huge um, apology. He probably has no recollection of this, but he arrived to the event with Tom Mesereau. And I immediately kind of like burst into every feel and emotion I have had since the 2005 trial and have some really great photos of the three of us together. Um, so it was such a, a delight. But yeah, Charlie was such a champ as I as he stood by and listened to me blather on to Tom Mesereau. Yeah, it was an incredible night. And I don't think many of us knew who was all going to be there that night. Um, so it was it was really exciting to have so many people that have been very vocal and instrumental in, you know, Michael's legacy. Oh, that's fantastic. And of course, Christina, you are referring to Charlie Thompson. Charlie, uh, it's been a whole week since you've been on, on the MJ cast. Welcome <laughs> back. Yeah, no, I don't have any recollection of that. So you're in the clear. <laughs> but we, we we met so many people that day, 
and took a lot of pictures and stuff. So I probably would recognize the picture. I'll have to send it to you afterwards. It was a bit of a whirlwind because, as you say, I brought Tom as my plus one. <laughs> and from the moment we walked through the door, it was just like bedlam. It was like nonstop. It was all just very surreal. Last but not least, we also have friend of the show from the Violet Reality, Casey Rain. Casey appeared on the MJ cast, I think, something like over four years ago on the Prince and Michael Jackson roundtables with his partner, Kim Camellio, who also runs the Violet Reality. Casey's from Birmingham, is a community manager at Sphere, a new group chat tech startup. And as I said, most well known probably in the community for heading up the Violet Reality, a great Prince website and YouTube channel. He's been a Michael Jackson fan since 1989 and a Prince fan since 1995. Casey, welcome back to the MJ cast. It's been a long time, but I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. And and listeners can probably guess by the fact that we've got Casey on the show and, and also Charlie and Christina, who are also big Prince fans, that when we get much further into the show, our main discussion topic today is going to be all about the Prince estate as compared to the Michael Jackson estate, just off the back of the brand new Prince release, Welcome to America, which I look forward to digging into and talking about. But without further ado, how about we kick off some of these news topics? I'm really excited to talk about some of these today because we've got some Michael Jackson news, I guess, connected to re-releases of material, which is not every day that we have that kind of thing. But as we've been talking about in recent episodes, the Jacksons themselves have released or re-released, I should say, a range of their albums. And they've done this kind of in in two groups. You, we had you know, the self-titled album and Go On Places and Destiny kind of come out at one time and now just over the next few days actually by april 30th we'll have the complete set of jackson's albums remastered and reissued some in vinyl mostly digital so yeah by the 30th we'll have uh, like i said the jackson's gone places destiny triumph victory and then 2300 jackson street all available digitally and uh, interestingly it looks like that there will be something like 39 bonus tracks available across all of the new albums combined. Uh, it must be said, though, that most of those bonus tracks are uh, things like 7-inch versions, 12-inch instrumentals, 12-inch dance mixes. Not a lot of rare tracks or B-sides, although there are some of those, especially on the album 2300 Jackson Street. So I'm pretty excited for this. What do you guys think? I'm super excited for Triumph in particular because that's my favorite Jackson's album. But broadly speaking, I think there's so many albums from especially kind of that time period of, of late 70s, uh, early 80s, where a lot of those 12-inch extended mixes and dub mixes and instrumentals and stuff like that, they just haven't been digitally available for a long time. And you end up listening to kind of crappy quality YouTube rips or sometimes where people are literally like pointing the camera at their turntable and filming it. Um, <laughs> so to have all that stuff like compiled and on streaming is, is going to be awesome. Really looking forward to that. Christina. I, I would agree. Yeah, definitely. Casey, I'm with you. I'm really looking forward to Triumph in particular. I, I love the fact that they're including bonus tracks, but Jamin, kind of what you're saying that, you know, when they're, multiple remixes of the same song, you know, the seven inch versions, it's great, but, you know, much like what we've seen with a lot of the Prince extra material, I don't need every single version that was ever recorded of every single song. So it'd be nice to, you know, have more unreleased tracks included. 
I am also a little disappointed just because I guess I'm probably more old school that I love physical releases and having something in my hand and having packaging and artwork um, that everything with the exception of Jackson's Live is only being released digitally. There are no physical releases planned. So that was kind of disappointing. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I actually spent about an hour a couple of weeks ago quite confusedly scrolling through Amazon thinking, why are the new Jackson's re-releases not on sale in the UK? I couldn't find them anywhere, only to be told by Jamin and Elise that actually there is no physical release for any of these sets, which is so disappointing because I don't belong to any streaming services or anything because I'm so technophobic. So whatever is on these new releases, I don't know how I'm going to listen to them. And the, the bonus tracks, I think I don't necessarily need 10 different versions of Can You Feel It? It would have been nice to get some unreleased stuff instead. Christina, just jumping on what you were saying before, I yeah, am probably most excited about that Jackson's Live reissue. Mm -hmm. uh, Elise actually got that one. She's a big vinyl fan, and she's just sent a text through actually after listening to it, and she says that it's immaculate. She loves it. It's an exact replica of the original vinyl packaging. Great seeing all the photos brightened up and shiny and new. It definitely sounds remastered, she's saying. It's a must-purchase. It's so much better than listening to the digital version. And and she's even saying that the, the thing that stands out most is the speaking parts, the audience interaction moments sound a lot clearer than the versions she's heard before, which is really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't picked it up yet, so I'm looking forward to it. And, and I'm very much a huge proponent of vinyl and that you just, you get tones and, you know, the cracks and pops and, and things that you just don't get digitally. And I'm, you know, I grew up in the, in the seventies and eighties. So, you know, we got used to, you know, lugging vinyl everywhere and um, there's just, there's nothing like it. You know, I, I got involved in the, in the Prince community through the MPG music club because a friend of mine, Sam Jennings worked for Prince and designed everything. So that's really important part for me is you know, having that that artwork and those photos and having something tangible. So to hear that they've improved upon, you know, what's included with the Jackson's Live release is makes me very happy. I think one thing that I would like to see with some of these Jackson's reissues and stuff is it, it seems to be quite opaque as to what's actually been done. Like, has it actually been remastered? And if so, like, who did it? And can we get this engineer to talk a little bit about it? It's like, it's a little bit closed off. It's just like, here's the reissue and it's got some bonus tracks on it. Like, I want to know the stories. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't give us enough credit sometimes that mm. um, there are fans out here still that love to, you know, scour liner notes. Exactly. And and discover all of that, especially with the ones that aren't being released physically. You know, where is that information? That's the kind of stuff that, you know, we we love to know about. Absolutely. For sure. And I was going through some of the tracks that are on some of these albums last night and you can't actually listen to them yet because it's only like the grayed out sort of preview on the streaming services for some of them. And in particular on 2300 Jackson Street, there's a really interesting mix of the title song 2300 Jackson Street and it's called the family mix. And all of these remixes that are being put on the, the albums with the exception of the new Can You Feel It remix seem to be from the time, like different alternate mixes and things like that and uh, I think that might be the only song on 2300 Jackson Street that Michael is on so I'm very interested to hear that alternate take. Absolutely curiously enough I did not own the 2300 Jackson Street vinyl up until 
a couple of weeks ago, and a couple of our Square One squad, as we refer to them, were at a flea market in LA, and there it was in the bin. So I haven't. I'm looking forward to listening to the original and then you know the the release. Yeah, there's a couple of good gems on there as well. Even without Michael, uh, nothing yeah. that compares to you is a is a great great song, Casey. You mentioned earlier on that Triumph is is your favorite Jackson's album. Mm. What do you love so much about that one? So Triumph, I think it's really, really interesting because it's almost like the last hurrah of Michael as a soul artist in like the traditional soul like element before Thriller and post-Thriller where, you know, the the kind of pop sensibilities take over. And I was listening to, I know it's in the show notes, we're probably going to cover it, but I was listening to the stripped mix of Give It Up that Remix by Nick did. And just to mm. hear that falsetto so clear and those you know, the kind of ad libs on that song that kind of evoke like earth, wind and fire. It's very much like, it's just such a soulful, joyful album. It's not trying to cover too many you know, different bases to kind of to a big mainstream appeal. You know, it, it is what it is. It doesn't have any kind of, you know, not, not that any albums have pretensions, but sometimes you can see in an album sequencing, okay, we want to do this song for, the, for these people and this song for these people. And the direction gets a little bit wider. And with Triumph, it's just so focused. It's just so brilliant. I often say, like, to me, Triumph is more of a Michael record than Off the Wall is because he wrote more songs and he produced them. So when you're really trying to get to that intent of a songwriter, it's just it just speaks to me so much of where he was at that point in his life. As much as I love songs like, you know, She's Out of My Life, as a songwriter, there's a little part of me that always thinks, well, you know, Tom Barlow wrote this about you know, Karen Carpenter or whatever the story is. Like, it's right there in the back of my head. But when I hear like, um, time waits for no one, that is so personal. When you hear Michael singing like, you know, lonely in my darkened room, you, you just feel it. I feel it from his soul. And it's just such a brilliant album. I love that. I love that. Triumph is absolutely my favorite Jackson's album as well. And up there with my favorite MJ products, it's grittier, it's funkier. To me, it represents the peak of the Jackson's powers. Christina, your favorite Jackson's album and why? You know, I you both took the words right out of my mouth. I, I'll put another vote in for Triumph for all the same reasons Casey just mentioned. Um, I did have an opportunity to just to listen to the to Nick's remix right before recording today, and you know, I had the same thoughts. the The vocals are just are so pure and so so eloquent. And I will admit, and I'm, I'm probably will get laughed at for this. I do love going places because it contains two of my all-time favorite songs, Different Kind of Lady and Jump for Joy. And if you play mm. them back to back, you cannot have a bad day. Those are the two songs when they come out in the car, I make an absolute fool of myself. So that, that record, that album holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, Gamble and Huff Jackson's is underrated and yes. absolutely <laughs> awesome. All right. So Charlie Thompson, your favorite Jackson's album and why? For me, it's almost impossible to choose between Destiny and Triumph, but I think Destiny edges it for me, and I can't really explain why. Probably because you asked me in the last episode, what were my top three Michael Jackson songs? And one of the three that I named was, that's what you get for being polite. I'm with the other two, you know, it's the writing on those two albums it's around the off-the-wall thriller period, but you're getting a lot more Michael Jackson, ironically, through the Jacksons albums than you are through off-the-wall thriller, just through the volume of songs that Michael is writing and producing. 
on those records. And in fact, weirdly, because I was saying in the last episode that it's vanishingly rare that I listen to Michael's music, but after that episode, I went on one of my daily walks around the woods and it's sort of our discussion inspired me to listen to a couple of Michael tracks. I listened to Keep the Faith because we'd spoken about it so much. And then I listened to um, Shake Your Body. And I realized as I was listening to it that I don't know if the brothers' vocals are even on that song. Do the brothers sing anything on that song? Or is it just Michael all the way through? It's basically just a Michael Jackson song. It's, it's almost like unfiltered Michael Jackson, whereas Off the Wall and Thriller... It's Quincy, it's Bruce, it's Temperton. It's a much bigger team. I just feel like you get a lot more Michael through those two albums. And the other thing is that Michael sounds so happy, even on the kind of brooding songs like This Place Hotel. He still sounds young and effervescent and joyous. And, you know, obviously as Michael's life went on, there was a lot going wrong. And it just sort of transports you back to a happier time. And I always think it's the same with a live performance, where it's, it's much easier to enjoy a show when you can see that the performer's having a great time as well. Yeah. I find it a lot easier to engage with and enjoy that earlier stuff just because Michael seems so much happier with what he's doing. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with that. And I think Thriller, the success of Thriller, it's like it's just this massive like double-edged sword because he wanted that he wanted that huge success but he probably didn't want everything that that success caused all the negative stuff and when you listen to triumph you can almost hear like this alternate path that his life could have taken right where he thought you know what i'm not going to go for that i'm going to be the singer in, in my family band like i have been and and be in in the kind of path of of groups like you know the commodores or earth wind and fire or the temptations or, or whoever it's like mate would he still be here if he had done that you just don't know. Uh, he certainly probably wouldn't have had to deal with some of the you know, really nasty stuff he had to deal with. So that's what I think about when I hear Triumph. Yeah, really. yeah. I, lo I love those thoughts. And, and I guess later in the show, we'll do a bit of a comparative discussion between Michael Jackson and Prince. But I think we could all agree that one of the big differences between the two is that Prince was extremely prolific and put out lots and lots of music very frequently, whereas Michael was a bit slower in that respect. However, when you look at the very late 70s and early 80s, really between the run of Destiny all the way through to Thriller, I mean, this is when Michael was really, you know, pumping out album after album, really, in some cases, twice a year or once every year. And and even even a lot of the, the demos that he recorded during these times for the Triumph album went on to be worked on years later. I think Little Susie had its origins during this time and, and was finished up for the History album. Yeah, I think the speed and the, you know, the prolificness and... and how that slowed down after that point. It's like this, it's being a victim of, of your own success and this pressure that you've put on yourself or you feel that the world has put on you. Whereas Prince never fell for that. Like he just, it just wasn't a thought in his mind. It was just like, I'm going to make whatever I want to make. If you don't like it, fine, fuck you. I'll make something else next year. Maybe you'll like that one. And he's just going to keep going. <laughs> um, he really didn't care about, you know, selling however many records he said. I think the, the quote that he once said was, uh, there'll be at least one person out there that'll have one of everything. <laughs> he said, uh, Beyond that, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, uh, speaking of these Jackson's reissues, they were kind of accompanied by a, an interesting remix. And I know uh, we've all got slightly different views on remixes uh, in this discussion, but it was kind of a promo single, I guess you could call it. Can you feel it? Jackson's 
and MLK Remix. It came out a couple of weeks ago or maybe three weeks ago. And I think they put it up on YouTube and it's a bonus track on the Triumph reissue. If you haven't heard it, it's pretty much Can You Feel It? But given a more modern sort of funkier percussive beat, I think it's even maybe got some new bass in there. They've mixed in speeches by Martin Luther King Jr. and Barack Obama. I I quite enjoy it as far as remixes go. I think they did make it funkier without completely ruining it and turning it into a uh, Bad 25 Pitbull remix with Afrojack. It's going to be, I think, a really good Black Lives Matter playlist theme song moving forward in addition to songs like They Don't Care About Us. I'd love to hear what you guys think. I personally obviously still prefer the original by A Country Mile, but as far as if they're going to put a remix on the album, I think they've done it in a fairly classy way. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think uh, I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, I thought that probably the best thing to do would have been to premiere it with like a video and to include like those visuals of MLK and, and Obama. Mm. I feel like that would have been way more powerful. I was a little bit nonplussed the first time I heard it. I was trying to make the you know the connections, but I don't I don't dislike it. It's not massively different to the original. It's very subtle, so that's. Maybe a good thing or, or a bad thing, depending on you know your point of view on remixes. But it, it didn't it didn't blow me away. I just thought, yeah, a pretty cool new mix. I probably won't listen to it many times because I'll just listen to the original. But yeah, still cool. Yeah, I feel pretty much the same way. In fact, the Jacksons have a good track record of when they do go back and touch up or improve music. They tend to do it quite subtly. You can see that on the the song This Is It that Michael originally recorded with Paul Anker that came out on the on the This Is It soundtrack. The version that they feature on just has these have these really subtle kind of background harmonies and strings that go with it that embellish it but don't completely try to modernize and ruin it. So I think they've done kind of a similar thing with Can You Feel It? And I quite enjoy that. Christina, your thoughts? Agreed. Love the vocals. I love the fact that you can hear, I don't know if that was actually in the original recording, kind of how he's ad-libbing and even doing like some beatboxing, for lack of a better term, in the background. I don't recall ever hearing those on the original. I wasn't a huge fan of the poppy synth kind of their, I prefer the original music arrangement. So that part, and I agree too, that, you know, releasing a, a visual video to go along with it would have really kind of tied the ribbon around it very nicely. It, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not, I wouldn't choose it, I think, over the original, but really did love hearing Michael's vocals. One thing that, yeah, I mentioned this before with the remasters, I want to go back to it. It's like, who did this mix? Oh, I want to know, right. like, that's, there's, this is lack of information. Like who actually made this mix? Like did the brothers do it? If so, like which one of them is this some like new DJ they're working with? It's like, who, I just want to know. Like, it's just this, this missing information that I need. <laughs> right. And I, I don't understand why they don't share that information. If they just don't think the fans are savvy enough to be interested in that sort of information. I, I don't know. And I, I, I don't want to take away from our conversation later in comparison between the estates, but and I realized that this was a Jackson's release, but it just, it kind of goes back to this continual, like giving us little bits and pieces of things, but not an entire product that is really going to satisfy the fans. Yeah. hundred percent. Charlie. Yeah. I've, I've not heard the remix by the way, but I, you know, I have many problems with the Prince estate, but one thing that they do do very well 
is explaining the background and the context to the things that they're releasing and they put out. And it's so easy to do now. And the way that the Prince Estate does it is through this podcast that it releases, the official Prince podcast, where they interview the people that are putting these things together. And it's a fantastic sort of extra dimension to everything that they do. And it is so easy now. You could hear on the last, on the Sign of the Times episodes of that podcast that they were interviewing people over Skype. I mean, it's really, it's really quite easy and cheap as well. So it does make you wonder why they can't be bothered, whoever it is that's in charge of all this stuff. I saw one interview with the brothers that I thought was quite interesting. I think it was in The Guardian, but I forget mm. which one it was now, where, of course, the interviewer started asking the brothers about leaving Neverland. And they said, do you really think if anybody believed all that stuff, we would have got the clearance to use Martin Luther King and Barack Obama in a Michael Jackson remix? I thought that was a good point, actually. A positive note. But anyway, I've not, I've not listened to the remix, and I've probably, if I do listen to it, it'll probably be by accident. <laughs> I, I don't think you would hate it as much as other remixes <laughs> that you may have heard. It's really quite subtle, but it, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, actually, Charlie, especially how they've blended in those speeches. But I know you're not the biggest fan of remixes in general. Charlie loves remixes. What are you talking about? He's always talking about how much he loves them. <laughs> The second half of Blood on the Dance Floor is by far his favourite Michael Jackson. <laughs> I sense a, a gallon of facetiousness there. <laughs> uh, look, speaking of remixes, uh, the Michael Jackson fan communities, one of our favourite remixes, remixed by Nick, has released uh, a new track, Give It Up, Nick Stripped mix and i gotta say nick has absolutely done it again i've said it a million times before but the thing i love about nick in in a lot of remixes he doesn't actually use any other elements apart from what's there in those original multi-tracks just bringing different things to the fore removing things just to allow michael fans to have a bit of a different take on those original elements rather than adding anything new in in this version of give it up which is just this this remix has just allowed me to fall in love with this song all over again it only features piano strings and vocals and it is absolutely stunning to hear michael in this way as we've kind of said before greg Gaines is on keys jerry peters on strings it is glorious it puts elements at the front of the song that you may not have appreciated before it's kind of made me re evaluate the song it's always to me kind of been a bit of an uh, an album track and that's i guess that's what sets the jackson's records aside is that the album tracks are, are so strong i don't think it was a, a single but it's absolutely blown me away listening to it again oh it's a fantastic mix i mean nick stuff just brilliant just brilliant and i think uh, one thing that i think that he did on this mix i only listened to it a couple of times i want to listen to it again just to be sure i think he lifted up the backing vocals to almost the same level as as the lead vocals maybe it's just because you know the drums and the other elements were, were kind of taken out and it's it is that stripped mix but i mentioned before when we were talking about triumph that like you know some stuff you know reminds me of kind of earth wind and fire and one thing earth wind and fire always did was they had those backing vocals as leads like what would usually be a backing vocal was a lead like the body like that kind of stuff and in in give it up like you hear that ba -ba, and in nick's mix it's kind of like up there with the lead and i'm like yes i love that stuff yeah i'm so glad i don't think that i had heard any of his remixes until it was um you know we were going to discuss the one today 
Um, so I'm looking forward to going back and, and listening to his others because I, those are the ones that I appreciate the most is where they've risen Michael's vocals and things in the background. And I know we'll talk about sessions live later, but that's been one of the things that in listening to Michael's songs during these IG lives, there are so many layers that you never hear in the, in the final mix. And it's just, it's been incredible to listen to all of the different nuances and things that Michael is adding in the background that you would never hear otherwise. I mean, it's crazy to me that Nick and people like um, Single White Glove, they're basically picking up the slack for what the estate should be doing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Any other estate, you would think that they would reach out to these people and get them involved and just do something together, make it collaborative. But when like, when Single White Glove's like Man in the Mirror mix has like 10 million views on YouTube and the estate just don't even care, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Oh, absolutely. And isn't that the story of the Michael Jackson fan community in general? Like all of these different people who are experts in their own fields, bringing that to the table and picking up the slack for what the estate should be doing. I mean, I dread the day that uh, the, the estate announces an official podcast because it's like, okay, what do we, you know, where does the MJ cast fit in with all that now? But uh, we'll see if that even happens. I've got to ask, actually, just seeing as I've got you here, Casey, with the Princess State having started their own podcast what has that meant for people like yourself with the violet reality and even more broadly podcasts like peach and black it hasn't it hasn't made any difference to to us i mean our listenership our views has only gone up you know since they they did their own thing so i think it's just a case of like you know there's that that phrase a rising tide lifts all boats you know there's more attention mm. in general and some of that will spill over to us and some of the attention from stuff that we put out, you know, will spill over to them. And and I know, um, you know, all the people that are working on this stuff with the Prince Estate. So everybody has a really good relationship with each other. I think with us, it's a little bit different because our medium is YouTube. It's we're not audio first. So maybe it's a little bit different for Peach and Black and people like that. I, I couldn't say. I mean, you'd have to ask them. I, I, I did note that Peach and Black, I think they've stopped doing the podcast, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I think they, they wound it all in a few months ago. And um, Captain, who's one of the guys that, that does it, he, he seemed a little bit disillusioned and said they weren't making any new, new episodes and they haven't since then. So I don't, I don't really know why that is. I, I don't think the existence of an official Prince podcast has anything to do with it. But regardless, there's a lot of people making great work, uh, including Peach and Black and other podcasters, I think, I've not noticed it being an issue. Um, I think overall it's just a, another great thing that exists. All right. Um, next news item. Uh, there is a new illustrated anthology out called Michael Jackson in Comics, which has just been released recently. It's by NBM Graphic Novels. I have not seen anything within it other than the cover, but I have read a review a review of it. It's, it's $17.60 Australian hardcover. And uh, I'll just read an excerpt from Amazon about it. Well beyond his passing in 2009, Michael Jackson remains one of the most adulated and mysterious stars in the world. Incredible singer, brilliant musician, amazing performer. He was just as talented as he was eccentric, adored as well as reveled with sordid accusations, sadly caught between a stolen childhood and a suffocating star system. Discover in this biography, mixing comics and documentary chapters, how the youngest of the Jackson Five was propelled to the front of the stage and then onto one of the most extraordinary solo careers in music. The next volume in the sellout series featuring the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Bob Marley. 
So this comic is 192 pages, and apparently it, it's a like a compilation or, or a combination, I should say, of lots of different comic artists sharing their take on the story of Michael Jackson and the biography of Michael Jackson. Um, I read a, a review over at genreisdead.com, which was not <laughs> exactly positive about this release. It was saying things like it was confusing, it was compiled without any kind of chronology in mind. There were lots of shifting themes. It covers things all from like Michael rehearsing for the Jackson 5 through to the trial and, and just a real huge breadth of things from his story all mixed in out of order and without a lot of context. They were saying it was kind of anecdotal rather than a complete story of Michael Jackson. That review didn't bode very well for me. I guess it's all about the artwork in the end. I have not seen this in real life, but I am kind of interested to see to see what it's like. Have you guys got any thoughts on this? There's a couple of three or four pages that you can see uh, if you click into the Amazon listing and you click on the thumbnail. There's like a little bit that says look inside or something. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. So, so in the preview, there's like a couple of pages of the art and then a couple of pages of written stuff, which, you know, the written stuff definitely didn't, you know, blow me away. But I did note uh, one of the pages is actually the credits of the book. And it says, copyright 2018, copyright 2021 for the English translation. So it seems to be something that was originally done elsewhere in you know, a, a native tongue that's not English and then has been translated to English, potentially not by somebody super well-informed or, you know, maybe that speaks to that review that, that you mentioned where they said it seemed a bit haphazard. So, mm. yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to note. I think it might just be some poor quality translation. Somebody was just like, yeah, let's just translate it into English and sell it again. Mm. Christina. So I will admit to not being a huge comic fan. Um, I don't know a whole lot about comics. Um, I will admit to owning the Prince comic book that was put out a million years ago and have it primarily because I'm a bit of a completionist when it comes to some Prince stuff. And I think I've looked through it maybe once and then it's just remained in its plastic sleeve. So it's probably highly unlikely that I would make this purchase. Um, and I, I also only saw the cover. I didn't realize that there were additional thumbnails on Amazon because I'd love to see you know more of what it looks like. But um, just based on the reviews, uh, probably very unlikely that it's something I would add to my collection. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I have the Prince uh, comic book as well. And, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm not a big comic book fan either, but I, I, like you as a collector, I, I wanted to have that. And I do have something similar that was done for uh, Kurt Cobain at, at some point as well. And I wow. think the thing that I like about the Kurt one and, and the Prince one is that it's it's a consistent product, right? There's There's a graphic designer and a text person that's put it all together whereas this this particular mj comic seems to be like a compilation from like 20 or 30 different artists with very little consistency um and that you know doesn't really you know light my fire i did not realize that yeah so that would be even less appealing personally yeah same and charlie i can tell you're just chomping at the bit to comment on this uh, unofficial <laughs> michael jackson comic book I want to know how you even knew about this. Do you just trawl Amazon looking for the most obscure new Michael Jackson products? I mean, <laughs> how? How did you even know? 
No, I mean, there's literally zero chance whatsoever of me purchasing this, and I have no interest. <laughs> well, to answer your question, it's all about friend of the show, Pez Jax's website, mjvibe.com. They, <laughs> they have every news item go up there, like pretty much as soon as it happens. All right. So now this one, I'm very excited to talk about the sessions live on Instagram. I had no idea this thing even existed until Elise told me a few weeks ago and I tuned in to I think well, what would be maybe their latest one um, or one of their latest ones and it was absolutely awesome. Listeners, if you don't know what this is, basically it's a channel that breaks down Michael Jackson or Jackson songs or different songs. It's like a DJ and he plays different elements from the multi-tracks separated. They, the sessions go for ages and they're just talking about all these different elements of the multi-tracks and how how each of the individual elements were recorded and they go back and they sort of research the songs before they talk about them. The last one that they did was ABC and I learned heaps of stuff about the song. I had no idea that there were two dual bass lines going on all the way through that song. There's like a more traditional kind of bass line. And then there's that real fuzzy kind of bass that you'll probably remember if you, if you recall the song. And both of those are individual parts happening all the way through the song. And I didn't even realize that. So it was really cool to listen to. Really funny, funny guy. I don't know if it's the same guy that does every, every one. I've only seen ABC. And what really blew me away about it too was that MJ Studio Luminaries just turn up in the chat during these sessions. So I'm watching it and Teddy Riley's in there, Jimmy Jam's in there talking about stuff. And it's just a really cool idea that focuses on the art but brings in all these people in the chat that work with Michael as well. Very, very impressive. I must admit, I feel really bad that I don't even know the guy. Like, I don't know who he is. Is he a famous DJ? Guys, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the sessions live. Yeah, so I would love to share that. And I'm so happy that we're talking about this because our little group has kind of teased me that every time sessions go live on IG, I'm like screaming from every mountaintop, you know, don't miss it. So I'm so glad that we're talking about it because I love the fact that he's getting more attention. Um, so the the individual behind the sessions is Christian James Hand, and he goes often by CJH. So Christian, um, he's a British musician. He was a drummer. He's a music producer. He's an on-air radio personality in currently in LA. He was also on the radio in New York. And then he was also a stage manager and toured with everyone from Public Enemy to Ice Cube to Peter Gabriel, Wu-Tang Clan. Um, he also produced the video for Outkast, Hey Ya. Oh, cool. So he is very well known in the music industry. I found out about him through D-Nice. You know, since the quarantine, I have been a huge club quarantine fan. You know, love what D-Nice has done. There were some days where it's like that was the only thing getting us through the pandemic. And apparently Jimmy Jam is who tipped D-Nice off to um, the sessions. So I started going and the first one I went to was PYT. And I have never heard the song PYT before that night. I'd heard PYT a million times but until he broke it down and what he does is he takes, um, you know, stem by stem. So he'll play, um, you know, just the drum stem and then just the bass. 
and then he'll do percussion and then he'll kind of layer them in so you can start to you know hear the 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 song being formed and then he'll do you know backing vocals separately what what really struck me and you're right he's he's quite the character he cusses a lot um he quite often is getting high during these sessions he did what I thought was really a vulnerable moment is he shared with everyone that he has Asperger's and and smoking is kind of what keeps him calm and focused. Mm. Um, so I respected that. And, you know, it's it's L.A. It's you, you get used to that. So he is quite a character. But you're right. What's amazing is like in the comments section, you have Greg Fillingains and Jimmy Jam and uh, he did Let's Go Crazy by Prince on um, on the 21st. And Wendy Melvoin was in the chat talking about how they created the song and, and what parts were hers. And, and Fred Yane was in there as well. So it's just, it's such an amazing experience. Sometimes there's like four or 500 people in there. So it's this really small group of people and you're actually directly interacting with um, like Sugarfoot's been there several times when he's done Michael's songs explaining how the song was created. So um, he, he, before the pandemic, Christian was doing these live and he just announced the other day that he's starting to plan dates where, you know, he'll have a, a live event where you can be in the audience as he's breaking these down and there's, you know, the interaction between the musicians. So I'm really looking forward to that. For the past, I don't know, month or two, he had been doing every Wednesday was an MJ song. So I would just highly recommend, you know, listeners, if you're interested in that, you know, check him out on Instagram, set those notifications because, you know, he kind of just does it when he's, when he's ready. Um, but he's done everything from PYT, Beat It, Smooth Criminal. He did ABC. And then, you know, typically it's one song, but he was like, the, the chat was amazing and people were loving it so much. He then followed that up with Rock With You. And that, again, was just mind-blowing. And then he did Want to Be Certain Something, and then that's when, like, Sugarfoot was in there, Greg Fillingains was in there, Jimmy Jam. Just an incredible experience. So, as you can tell, I'm a huge fan <laughs> of what he's doing. <laughs> um, it, sound, it sounds amazing. I'm going to have to check it out. But given that I haven't yet, I don't think I have too much to, to offer on that. But from your description, it sounds fantastic. So I have now followed this account on Instagram and I will be looking forward to the next session. He um, he does not save his sets, by the way, uh, for obvious reasons yes. um, due to licensing. And um, the, the other thing too is there is a backup account because a lot of times, anytime he tries to do anything that's Rod Tepperton, IG bots will shut it down within seconds. Um, so that's always a, an interesting night. The other little tidbit I wanted to share is what I was really impressed with is the the amount of reverence and respect that he shows, particularly when the vocal stems are played, mm. because it's a very, and especially for an artist that is no longer with us, you're hearing it completely stripped down and very vulnerable. And one thing that he shared with us when he did Let's Go Crazy the other night is the first time he had done this, he asked Wendy Melvoin, you know, how would Prince feel about this? And she said it would make him uncomfortable. He would probably not be happy about it. Um, so he, they agreed that he would not, you know, do Prince's songs without Wendy's blessing and her contribution. So he respectfully asked everyone to just shut down the chat, you know, stop talking, don't post emoticons, just listen. And hearing Michael's voice and 
his finger snaps and his foot stomps and all of the little noises he's making in the background that you don't hear in the final mix to me is priceless because he's not here. So I, I'm very grateful in the time he spends putting those together. That's a really interesting take from Wendy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, what's the DJ's name? Christian is his name? Christian James Hand. I think he must have got those um, Let's Go Crazy multitracks same time I did because they started circulating about two, <laughs> two months ago. And as far as I know, that's the, the only one that's kind of in semi-public circulation right now. But as far as Prince Stems, you got to remember... Prince was the one that was really pushing hard to release that seven CD audio set of stems in the late nineties that he wanted to sell for like $800 or or whatever the price was. We, when we interviewed Morris Hayes about it, Morris was the person tasked with putting it together and like going into all the tapes and pulling everything out and digitizing old stuff. And, and he said that he thought it was a terrible idea and he was telling Prince not to do it, not to do it. And he eventually kind of, went behind Prince's back to talk to Londell McMillan and said, Londell, you got to get Prince to stop this project because if he does this and then everyone's free to like use a loop from Kiss in a fried chicken advert, I'm not going to be happy about that. (laughs) That, That's a good point. (laughs) But it won't, you know, for a long time, Prince was very, very much into the idea. So I I always think it's a bit of a fallacy to when anybody, it doesn't matter who they are, says like, oh, Prince would have liked this or he wouldn't have liked this. But Right. It's like any any given year of Prince might be the opposite thing to what he even said the year before. So there's only so far that that kind of statement can can take you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he would, you know, the joke is he changed his mind more often than he changed his clothing. So yeah, I could see that. And, you know, uh, Casey, I think it was you that had touched earlier on kind of the differences between Michael's estate and, and with Prince mm. is, you know, Prince understood that his fans were, were audiophiles. You know, we, we really cared about who was behind those recordings and what went into it. And, um, you know, sometimes he was uh, so protective of his product, but then there were other times where he would release things on the music club and let the fans just run with it and, and see where they would take it. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that that reminds me of is when, uh, the first ever or the second celebration when he had the computers asking fans what they wanted to see on crystal ball part two, which obviously yes. never, never came out, but he was like, you decide what to put on it. And you know, all these songs. Yes, absolutely. The music club was a great experience um, for mm. Prince fans. And it's, it's a shame that something similar like that wasn't available um, or isn't available for Michael and his music. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So did you say that these are not available for any kind of playback? You have to be there when they happen. Correct. Yeah, he does not save his set. So it's one of those live it in the moment, um, set those notifications. Um, a lot of times he'll do a post ahead of time um, in his feed announcing you know, when he's going to do it. Not every Wednesday has been MJ, but he's, he's tried to be pretty consistent about it. And then, yeah, they're, they're not saved or uploaded anywhere at what time do they generally happen? It's usually about 7 p.m. LA time on Wednesdays. So I know that's not convenient for, for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's about uh, <laughs> 2 or 3 a.m. here. So that's maybe going to rule me out, which is a shame because it sounds really yeah. interesting. It sounds essentially a bit like a, an online streaming version of Brad's seminars that uh, he used to do pre-pandemic which were always really interesting very very similar taking the multi-track breaking it down 
showing you how songs were built block by block. That always was fascinating. But um, yeah, it sounds like maybe uh, I'm going to be shut out if they're if they're taking place at three a.m. on a Wednesday, unless I start taking Thursdays off of work. <laughs> Charlie, the other barrier for getting you into this would be the requirement that you would have to sign up for Instagram and stop using MySpace. Yeah, that, yeah, that's actually I had to sign up. I had to set up an Instagram the other day because I needed to pinch some photos for a news story. So I do now have a completely unused Instagram account that I could log into. Now, whether I remember the password, now that's that's a question. <laughs> Please tell me the handle is at Father Charlesmas. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, actually to be to be honest, I don't remember what the handle was either. I hope I wrote it down somewhere. Okay, folks, let's take a break. So by now, you should be pretty familiar with crack corn and everything thereabout. It's pretty much like popcorn, but even better. There's no kernels or hulls, and it is so easy to eat. It is ridiculously delicious. You know they're pretty much family here with the MJ cast, and for almost a year now, they've unfortunately had to limit their shipments to just the US. Unfortunately, this has left many of our hooked listeners internationally without their beloved crack corn, and many have been left in the dark, not able to taste all the awesome new flavors they've been putting out, like the amazing French toast served with Smucker's breakfast syrup and the new limited edition cookies and cream made with Oreo. The folks at Crack Corn wanted those of you listening outside the US to know that they're back to take international orders, but just for listeners of the MJ cast. So no matter where you live, head on over to crackcorn.com slash the MJ cast. It's ultra premium puff corn. They're the king of puff and internationally they're back. Crackcorn.com slash the MJ cast. Let's get back to it. All right, let's move on guys to the next news story. This one a little bit sadder for many people in the Michael Jackson fan community. Howard Weitzman, principal lawyer for the Michael Jackson estate has passed away at the age of 81. I know health was an issue for Howard in the past couple of years from what I've read in the news articles that have come out around his passing. Uh, I might actually hand over here to Charlie for you to give a bit of a summary on on Howard's life and what he accomplished before we talk about his legacy. Well, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail because I don't really know that much. I mean, he was obviously a very powerful lawyer who represented, it seemed, at one point or another, pretty much everyone in Hollywood from Marlon Brando all the way up to Justin Bieber. I was reading the other day, because I really only know him through his connection to the Michael Jackson world, but I was reading the other day that he became famous in the early to mid-80s, representing John DeLorean, who was the car manufacturing tycoon, who was on trial for drug smuggling. He'd been caught in an FBI sting, and he was on tape making statements that incriminated himself. So it seemed like an unwinnable case. But Weitzman took it on and raised a defense of entrapment and won the case. And he became famous because it was one of the first big sort of celebrity trials that happened just in the age where cable news was starting to exist. 
there was more sort of wall-to-wall coverage of of court cases. Every day he was like the first lawyer that would hold a press conference on the courthouse steps after each day's events. And he became a favorite of the media because he was really funny. And I've been in a room with him a couple of times and he was a very funny person. The media apparently loved him because he was so funny and he was great at giving them sound bites. So he was able to take the day's events and reduce it down into a sound bite. I wrote down a quote earlier that I read from him. He said, I learned that on TV, they tend to take three words from the 10 sentences you spoke. So you learn pretty quickly to speak in sound bites if possible. You could see that even when he, uh, He became a commentator in 2005. Obviously, he was involved in Michael's case in 93-4. He was one of those present for the the nude photo shoot that Michael was forced to participate in. And he was one, he was, his signature is on the settlement document. In the 2005 case, he became a commentator for uh, one of the TV networks. I forget which one it was now, although I have quite a few clips of his commentary. And he was fantastic. He was really good at uh, taking the day's events and boiling them down and making them understandable and sort of explaining what they actually meant. Because the media was often sort of sprinting from the courthouse to report whatever had appeared to be the most shocking or salacious allegation that had been made on the stand that day, whereas Howard actually was very good during that period at summing up why, in fact, although this shocking allegation had been made, why actually overall for that day it had been a good day for the defence. And he was vindicated when the verdicts came in because he was one of the very few commentators on the trial who was actually saying from the very beginning the prosecution's case is falling apart and it's a turkey and and they're not going to get a conviction. He's sort of a figure of of some controversy in the in the community. Firstly, because there are people on both sides of the argument uh, regarding whether the settlement was the right thing in 1994. Howard Weitzman was somebody that's lobbied for the settlement from very early on. I'm trying to remember the name of the other lawyer. I think it was Bert Fields, who was basically fighting hard with Pelicano to say, we can't settle, we shouldn't settle, we've got to go to trial and win. And on the other side, you had Weitzman, who was saying, no, we need to settle. That was a feature of of Weitzman's career, I was reading the other day, was that he was known for trying to resolve cases without them ever going to trial. He was like the king of the settlement. And he said, uh, again, I wrote down another quote earlier that I, I found from him. He said, I was always more inclined to draw lines in the sand earlier in my career, but now I try to avoid the actual trial and resolve it short of litigation. So it was Weitzman's sort of MO to try to settle cases. So during the 93-4 case, you had this real butting of heads between Fields and Weitzman, and there are always going to be people on on either side who either believe that that was the right or the wrong thing to do. The other reason he's obviously a figure of some controversy is that he's the estate's lawyer, therefore quite involved in the uh, Casio lawsuit in defending the Casio tracks. So that's made him a figure of controversy. Also, though, very prominently involved in the litigation of the Robson Safechuck case and the HBO lawsuit in which he was very effective. And that was where I saw him in action in 2019. I was in court the day that the the judge U-turned and um, 
booted the case out of his court and to a, an appeal court because he'd sort of chickened out of sending the case to arbitration because uh, HBO had started making noises about this being an attack on the freedom of the press and the judge just wanted to get rid of it like a hot potato, so reversed his previous ruling and booted it over to the Court of Appeal and basically said, I'm going to let them deal with it. I was in court that day, so I didn't see how it do a lot of lawyering, but um, the results in the Robson Safe Chuck case and in the HBO case speak for themselves. Uh, they've pretty much, pretty much won everything. Almost every single motion, every single issue, they've won. Now, Howard wasn't the only one on that team, I think Jonathan Steinsapir is is fantastic, and he's been a leading force in in those cases as well. So anyway, that's a, a kind of a a potted history of Howard Weitzman. I think it's fan- I think it's fantastic that he was still practicing law in such high profile. I didn't realize he was eighty one until I saw this news about him passing away. Like that's that's impressive. As you alluded to, Charlie, you know, the, it is quite challenging as a fan because one thing that's quite clear is the guy was just incredibly good at his job but then sometimes in the case of like the fake songs you don't want him to be good at his job <laughs> like because it's defending something that appears to be like indefensible to to fans but then you know the results of the hbo thing as you said speak for themselves and you know that's a, that's a great legacy to to think about yeah i i didn't know a whole lot about howard weitzman you know charlie thank you for that that was more than than i was aware of um and you know there i could see that there are some pl- problematic history there with the the songs um and the the initial settlement from what i know about the initial settlement i understand kind of the thinking on both sides we have the benefit of you know hindsight and realizing what that put in place unfortunately and didn't make it go away. I did notice that Prince Jackson um, had posted something, you know, honoring Howard and that he had been very supportive of Prince and and getting Heal LA, you know, off the ground. So I, I got the impression that, you know, he was very supportive of, of the children, which he may have done some things that the fans don't agree with, but I, I think overall his, his support of Michael and um, protection of his his legacy um, is what's most important. I also had no idea he was in his 80s. When he passed away, it was a difficult um, thing to process for somebody, well, for myself in particular, and I guess other people like Damien Shields, who have been so involved in researching the Casio case in particular, the way I approach this, and it was it's, it was very difficult to to give any kind of opinion or commentary on social media straight after it happened, other than just highlighting the positive aspects um, of Howard Weitzman. I don't mean to speak ill of him in any way, but I guess we we really looking back, it, it is a mixed legacy I think he leaves in the Michael Jackson fan community. Casey, you're 100% right in in identifying the Casio tracks as the, uh, the the main issue here. In the statement that he released straight after the, the Casio tracks thing all came about on November 11th, 2010, there's a couple of lines in it that really kind of set in motion this mixed legacy. One of them is, 
where he says that six of Michael's former producers and engineers who had worked with Michael over the past 30 years, Bruce Sudian, Matt Forger, Stuart Brawley, Michael Prince, Dr. Freeze, and Teddy Riley, were all invited to a listening session to hear the raw vocals of the Casio tracks in question. I'll skip down to the end of the paragraph, and it says, they all confirmed that the vocal was definitely Michael. And I guess the problem is that we know from from some of those people who have since spoken about that listening session that that just wasn't true. Yeah. And then in the last in the last paragraph, he talks about you know Michael's fans being extraordinary in their quest for accuracy and their passion to raise their voices, and that the estate will join them in their care and concern for Michael. And it it, it seemed like in every single turn and at every corner from 2010 onwards in. When the, when the Jackson family, the beneficiaries and, and the fan community tried to question these uh, tracks that we, we know are fake, they were blocked. And, and it, was, it was hard because, I mean, of course, that's Howard's job is to defend the position of the estate. That is his job. But, you know, so many important voices like the beneficiaries knew that that was the wrong position to take at that time. So it is a mixed legacy that he leaves. But uh, I, of course, feel sorry for his family and those that were close to him. I think also that some of us are privy to more information about what was happening behind the scenes during that whole Casio debacle through our ties to Damien. And there's more to Howard's position on those tracks than his public position. It's unfortunate, I think, legacy-wise for him at the moment that he, he will be judged on what is publicly known as opposed to maybe his deeper, more personal position on that issue. And maybe that will come out in time through legal proceedings and through Damien's podcast. I think he's maybe not the bogeyman that he appears to be. I mean, that statement is indefensible, of course, where he released that statement saying that they all said it was Michael, when in fact that was not true. But I think it's possible that at some point in the maybe not too distant future that fans will find out a bit more about uh, Howard Weitzman's position on those songs and, and it may change some attitudes. Oh, I, I, I certainly I certainly hope so. And I think, you know, the work that Damien has been doing is just so important and i'm really looking forward to a lot of these details coming out you know that issue just just tore everything apart i mean even i was broken hearted when teddy riley was on oprah like i was like dude <laughs> i just need you to be honest right now <laughs> like how can you do this so uh you know damien's work is going to be incredible uh bringing those details out i'm really looking forward to that so good good to hear that that there is more to Howard's part of the story then then perhaps is known about. For sure. And it must be said as well that Vera Sarova, the lawyer and fan who has brought the case against the uh, the estate and Sony and the Angelicson team had a very interesting relationship with Howard, <laughs> even though they were adversaries in the courtroom. It seems as though they had quite a, a respect for each other. Vera, over the years, has developed respect for his practice and him as a person. So I have no doubt that that case was probably heading in the direction of a settlement. Who knows where it's going to go now? Who knows who will become the estate's main lawyer? 
especially when it comes to the Casio tracks suit. But we'll we'll see as we move forward, I guess. Yeah, the first time I was in a room with Howard Weitzman was when I went out to Los Angeles in I think May, either May or June 2019, and I'd been invited out to speak at this UCLA thing all about uh, truth in journalism and documentary filmmaking because they were going to be focusing a lot on leaving Neverland and so they invited me to to come and speak and when I got there of course the place is absolutely crawling with Michael Jackson estate people and it turned out of course uh, John Branker and Howard Weitzman were on the panel also there in the audience was Vera Sarova. First time I'd ever been in a room with any of them. And I was quite shocked at the end of the event because there were a couple of estate lawyers there. One of them was Brian Friedman. He was being paid by the estate, but he was representing Angelicson. And Vera came over and introduced herself to him and he just basically shit himself and ran away. Um <laughs> And he's actually, funnily enough, he's also working for the estate on the uh, HBO case. Also, there was was Weitzman, and unlike Friedman, he had a, a quite a long, very friendly conversation with Vera right in front of me. And I was really surprised to see that they got along as well as they did. He did seem to be the kind of lawyer who was able to vigorously represent his client in the courtroom but once the gavel came down he was just back to being Howard and it didn't matter who you were or who you were representing he seemed to get along with everybody and he was quite an amiable person as I say a very funny person Uh, it was hard not to like him Um, the Casio issue is is an unfortunate one but I think maybe as more becomes known he may emerge as not quite as uh, as damned as, as he seems at the moment. Charlie, just before we move on to the next news item, could you really dig into that issue of friction for us around the settlement? Um, I know that that's something you went into on a lot of detail with friend of the show Ryan Michaels when you guys did Pirate to Neverland. Christina mentioned before that the opposing quote-unquote sides or the two viewpoints on whether the settlement should have happened. Could you explain maybe why there's friction there and why Howard arrived at the conclusion that it needed to happen? Yeah, so there's two, um, there's two, obviously two camps. There's people that think the settlement should have happened and people that think it shouldn't. The reason ultimately that the settlement happened was because of this issue of the criminal and the civil case uh, conflicting with one another. So I, I explained this in square one, but just very briefly, civil case you're being sued for money criminal case you can go to prison right so the criminal case is more important in michael's case he was being sued and facing potential prosecution because evan chandler had accidentally triggered a police investigation by ballsing up his custody case he ended up with a a tandem criminal and civil case Whereas he never really wanted a criminal case. He just wanted money. He just kept going to Michael Jackson's lawyers and saying, I want 20 million, then made a stupid mistake. The police ended up getting involved. And then he's in this race against time to try to get the civil case resolved before a criminal case can go anywhere because all he wants is the money. 
which he was very clear about and which his own brother writes about in his book. The problem with a civil case preceding a criminal case is the prosecution can come and sit in court. It's an open court, public. Anyone can come and sit in there. They can write down everything that you raise in your defense, whether it's character witnesses, whether it's percipient witnesses, whether it's alibi, whatever your defense is. They can come down. They have a front row seat for that defense. Then when they're constructing their criminal case, they can say, right, we know that he has an alibi witness on these dates. So let's say it happened on these dates, which is exactly what they did in the Arviso case. When they found out Michael had an alibi, they shifted all the alleged abuse by two weeks to circumvent the alibi. So they absolutely did not want a civil case happening before a criminal case. And so they kept trying and trying to get the civil case postponed. In the end, the judge wouldn't do it. And they had to, they settled the case on the eve of Michael being forced to give away his defense. If they'd waited another 24 hours, his defense would have been given away to the, to the prosecutors that were trying to bring criminal charges against him. So that's why the settlement was reached. I don't think that that is why Weitzman was lobbying for the settlement from the beginning, of course, because that was an issue that played itself out over several months and involved numerous, I think, five different court appearances to try to get the, the civil case delayed, whereas Weitzman was lobbying for the settlement from the beginning, because as we know, that was his MO. He was Mr. Settlement. That was always his preferred option. And I think that the obviously the argument that was being made for the settlement in the very beginning was it's going to cost you 20 million. Evan Chandler's demanding 20 million. That's piss to you. That's nothing. That's like a couple of concerts. That's nothing. You might as well just give it to him and get rid of the whole case and just try and move on. And it was actually Michael in the beginning who was refusing to settle. He was saying, I'll settle. I'll settle for an apology. That's what I'll settle for. So Michael was very resistant. Burt Fields was very resistant, as was Anthony Pelicano, because they both felt that if they went to trial, they could win and that settling would be like an admission of defeat. So there were all these different conflicting positions. Effectively, Michael was refusing to settle. I think David Guest wrote about that in uh, in his book, actually. It was either in his book or in his documentary where he said that he spoke to Michael like a couple of days before the settlement. And at that point, Michael was saying, I'll never settle. And then two days later or something, he read in the media that Michael had settled. And it was basically the decision to settle was foisted upon them because of this civil versus criminal issue. Hopefully I've explained that in a relatively understandable way. Yeah, you've explained it really, really well. Thank you. I think a lot of our listeners still, you know, we it, there's so much going on in these cases that to try and grapple with that issue, it's good to have it broken down like that. Thank you very much. Uh, next thing to talk about, guys, are a few auctions that are happening around the place. Uh, we don't need to dig into each one in too much detail, I don't think. But the first one to talk about is uh, the bronze statue collection that has been auctioned once before. Uh, in September 2020, MJ Vibe announced that a fan who managed to grab a number of these bronze statues from Neverland was selling them all at an auction, and the auction took place in October. Well, around 20 of these bronze statues are back, ready to buy, this time in Dubai, in an auction that's taking place in Dubai. It's unclear if those were the unsold items from that that previous auction or if they're being resold from another owner. But the price tag now is currently at around $2.5 million. 
I don't know if you guys followed that link to look at some of these Neverland statues. They're famous. They were pictured in, you know, the Oprah special, the Living with Michael Jackson special. These are very famous uh, bronze statues from the grounds of, of Neverland. There's things from Disney characters to children in various activities and then historical figures. They are really beautiful and um Really, uh, Michael, I think, did a great job in selecting a lot of these to make Neverland as beautiful as it became. The only thing is I don't have $2.5 million lying around. Um, so I, I have a little bit of intel on the, the auction that took place last fall and then this follow-up auction. The auction that was last fall, it was either September or October, as you had mentioned, about 12 to 14 of the very large bronze sculptures were purchased and returned to Neverland. So those are back where they belong, um, much to the delight of a number of uh, Neverland employees who were there not only when Michael was living there, um, but even before Michael. There's some good news there um, that there's about, I think, 12 to 14 from what I recall. Um, I don't know specifically which ones. I was sent some photos of of some of the statues that were returned and are back on the property. I know the bell was one of them, the very large bronze bell. Um, I'd have to go back and look if if anyone's interested in knowing exactly which ones are back. What's up for auction right now is is from the same um the same individual that that did the auction last fall. But I get the feeling that, um, you know, he's just he wants to offload these things. And that's why they're not entertaining bids for for separate pieces. It's unfortunate because my hope was, you know, for for the for the bronze sculptures that were specifically made for Neverland, I'd love to see those come back for the other pieces that are in that lot that were things that Michael purchased for like the interior that weren't custom made specifically for the ranch. I have less of a you know personal conviction about those. But my hope was that, you know, all of those bronze sculptures would come back. That said, the the new owner at Neverland um, is doing very well from recent uh, news. So my fingers are still crossed that uh, those will, will end up back at the ranch. Christina, all of those pictures that have come out recently of different, you know, rides like uh, amusement park rides mm. being um, taken into Neverland. Um, I think Ron Burkle must have organized or approved for a lot of that to happen. Do you have any background info on why they're going in? I, I do actually. And um, so the rides are not back. I think what, what happened was, is a, a ride showed up. It was not an original Neverland ride. And of course, most of the time there is at least one fan or two at the gate. Um, so very little goes undetected, even though you're, you're literally out in the middle of nowhere. What they saw was a very small slide coming back, nothing on the scale of what Michael had with that giant slide that you see like in private home movies. No one knows whether it's permanent or if it will only be temporary. It's not placed, last I saw, on the where the amusement park rides were, it's kind of off to the side by the dance studio. So I, I don't, I'm not privy to what the thought process is behind, you know, why that came back. I do feel comfortable sharing, especially since Rob Swinson, I think kind of put this out that the um, both trains have been returned to the ranch and um, the railroad tracks are being repaired. 
So, um, yeah, that was made me really happy along with the fact that, you know, the roof is being repaired, um, or was repaired. Um, so it's, it sounds, I have suspicions as to kind of what's in line for the future with the ranch. Um, but I, I don't have, um, I'm not privy to, you know, definitive plans. My personal hope would be that, um, you know, he will make the property available, to heal LA, you know, to the children, Michael's children, and find a way that doesn't ruffle the feathers of Santa Barbara County and the nightmare permitting process, you know, so that there's there's an appropriate way to have fans enjoy the property. You know, I I had the the great honor of of going to a fundraiser there in 2012. And you can see all the photographs and video, but until you step foot on that property, it's so beautiful and his energy is still there. So I have great hope not to turn this into a, a Neverland episode, but my fingers are crossed that good things are are coming. When I was at Havenhurst 2019, on the the charity day for Heal LA, where they bring up busloads of... Um, of kids from Watts and from other areas that are relatively underprivileged. I was there, I was supposed to be helping out, but nobody asked me to do anything. So I just sort of was mooching about really, but um, I was there all day, including at the end after everybody left, when everything was being cleared up, I was chatting with Hamid Mosley, who was doing some uh, photography for Prince for Heal LA at the event. As Prince was leaving, he said, Hey Hamid, I spoke to John the other day and I said to him, the next one, Neverland. This was before Neverland was sold to Ron Burkle, but it sounded like at that point Prince was intending, at least, on trying to use Neverland as a venue for uh, charity events. So maybe that will happen. Maybe that is in the offing. Who knows? Charlie, I think you, you hit it right on the on the head there that... Um... I know that Ron has been very supportive of Michael's children and and Michael when he was still alive and that there, there have been conversations with the children. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed that the, the heel LA thriller event is, is at Neverland later this year or, or next year, whenever the pandemic will allow, that would be an, an incredible experience. Wow. And it could raise a lot of money. You know, it's, it's, I've worked in nonprofit for over 20 years and, you know, my dream job would be to work at Neverland and and be able to work with nonprofits to help them raise funds and have that property, that kind of love and and magic and and everything, the healing properties of the ranch. You know, that was Michael's vision for it. It was more than just his home. It was a place where, you know, children and families could come. um, And so many of those families, their time at Neverland is the last happy memory they have of their family being whole. The staff would get letters afterwards from those families where they went home and those children passed away. Um, so th- there's there's much to be done yet there, um, I think, in a, in a very altruistic and, and um, humanitarian method. Beautiful, beautiful. So we, speaking of Rob Swinson, you raised his name a little earlier. He famously uh, was the guy that worked at Neverland for a long time, bringing in different rides. Uh, and I have had the pleasure of having a couple of conversations with Rob a few years ago. And he uh, is an interesting guy, Vietnam vet, actually. Uh, also authored the book Maker of Dreams. 
uh, creating Michael Jackson's Neverland Valley Park. Uh, and that is a great, great book if, if uh, anybody wants to pick that one up to learn about those early days of installing all of the different rides at Neverland and, and Rob working with, uh, with different people on the ranch, including Brad Sundberg. Uh, he also is doing an auction at the moment, and uh, that auction hasn't happened yet. It's scheduled in for May 15th. It's through Rich Pen Auctions, and it's one of the most comprehensive uh, auctions that I think I've, I've really seen on Michael Jackson. It includes outfits, Billie Jean gloves, hats, signed artwork, very, very personal things. And Rob had this to say about the, the auction. Building Michael's Neverland and being his friend was a wonderful moment in my life. I've greatly enjoyed the pieces he gave me and the memories I shared with him, but it's time to let others cherish these items as much as I have. Now, I do have to say here, uh, and, and I was a little hesitant to add this into the show actually, but MJ Vibe put out a, a little uh, addendum at the bottom of their article on this auction. It's a note that says, items and signatures have been questioned by numerous fans. It's up to the seller to provide the originality and truthful provenance of those items. MJ Vibe will only report about the auctions and their content. It is up to the buyers to question if those are originals, fakes, or copies. We do recommend to contact the seller or the auction house for more information. Now, I'm wondering whether Pez and MJ Vibe have taken that cautious approach, especially considering what happened famously around <laughs> um, the Michael Bush uh, auction and, and exhibits that um, they were supportive of way back uh, at the time that they've since, you know, uh, developed a bit more of a balanced view on as um, heard in Pez's uh, episode with Elise on the MJ cast. But still, it, it kind of made me think, you know, like what's going on here? Is this another Michael Bush thing or... I don't know. Christina, do you have any thoughts on this auction? Yeah. So I actually took a look at, I, I registered on that website because you you have to, to, to register in order to actually see the individual items. The way they have it posted publicly is, is impossible to, to look at what's actually on there. It is interesting. There's a lot of really interesting items. There's no reserve, um, which is interesting. So there's, you know, the possibility that depending on how many fans are interested in bidding, you may be able to pick some things up for really reasonable prices. Gotta have rock and roll. Their auction um, that had a number of Michael's items was supposed to close last night. It's continually going. It's it's still not closed. A number of those items were like clothing from Frank Cassio, which you know, everyone in our circle was, you know, if, if there isn't a photo of Michael wearing it, uh, I wouldn't trust that. Um, you know, there's there's no way of knowing that those were actually, you know, owned by Michael. You know, signatures are tough because there are so many fakes out there. And even Michael wasn't consistent sometimes. You know, I've seen autographed items that they had photographs going along with Michael actually signing it, but his autograph looks nothing like, um, you know, his other certified so I would just proceed with caution. I think you're right that um, they may have added that disclaimer um, just to release them from any potential issues. Um, Rob, um, he's an interesting character. I've, I've you know, mm -hmm. watched some of his posts on social media, and I think he's got a really interesting story to tell. But I, I have not met him, and and wouldn't wouldn't know how to comment further on the validity behind those items. I did look through some of the items that were listed and I did notice that peculiarly 
one of the items that's listed in that auction seems to be a diary, what supposedly was Michael's diary. Not like a dear diary diary, but like a date planner diary, which seems to come with a letter of authenticity signed by Frank Cassio, which is always a bit alarming given some of the stuff that he has auctioned in the past, and given certainly some of the songs that his brother directly sold to uh, Sony and the estate. Yeah, <laughs> so anything that comes with an authentication from a Cassio, you're kind of going, oh. And also, why is uh, <laughs> why is Swenson selling something authenticated by Cassio? The whole thing is just a bit weird. I wasn't aware of anybody raising questions about the validity of the autographs. I hadn't heard of that. I did notice that there were a lot of autographs. I mean, there's a couple of lots where it's like five envelopes and they're all signed by Michael. It's like, why are you not selling these individually? All very strange. And uh, I just hope that, that Rob is okay and that he's not doing this because he needs the money because it would be really sad if he ended up flogging a bunch of stuff for cheap. Yeah, and, yeah. and the, it's so clear as well that he loves these items. Like in the time that I spoke with him, you know, I spent probably four plus hours talking to Rob. He, the, the adoration and the sheer love that he had for Michael and these artifacts that Michael gifted to him, like I don't know about all of them, but certainly that white smooth criminal hat, like, he loves those. And I can I can remember dozens of photos that he took wearing that hat to promote his book. And I, I don't know. I'm just kind of personally a little surprised that he's wanting to auction some of these really personal items off. You know, hopefully it's not for, for reasons where he really desperately needs the money, but we'll see. Uh, there is one more auction to talk about. This one is even more dubious. This is, uh, <laughs> this is through gottahaverockandroll.com. And uh, pretty sure Frank Cassio is involved because normally when it's got to have rock and roll, it's Frank Cassio. I, I think that establishment is <laughs> in a very close physical proximity to where the Cassios are based. I mean, this is the auction house that Frank used to try and sell Michael Jackson's dirty underwear, um, which is still just uh, one of the lowest <laughs> things that I've ever seen a Cassio do. Is this the auction where he's selling Michael's driver's demo as a That's Michael Jackson it. tape, Jungle yeah. City or something? Yeah, so there's a couple of songs in there. There's an original demo of the song Escape on a CD. I don't know, but I think there's a pretty high probability that's probably just a leaked version that Frank's ripped onto a CD. We'll see. But the Jungle song, from what I understand, Jungle City is a song that Dr. Freeze originally put together for Michael Jackson. Uh, from what I know, it is just an instrumental that has no Michael Jackson vocals over the top. And I think Brad Buxer may have worked on it as well to some extent, but we we know that Michael never recorded a vocal for it, even though apparently it's it's pretty funky. I One of the songs on the tapes that are being auctioned, Brad Buxer and Michael Prince were sort of laughing about it and saying, oh, well, whoever buys that's in for a laugh because it's it basically Michael had a driver who was convinced that he was an undiscovered talent and wanted to uh, record a demo. And so Michael sort of kindly humored him and allowed him some studio time with uh, Brad and Michael Prince to record a demo 
and that demo is now one of these tapes or CDs that Frank is uh, auctioning as unreleased Michael Jackson material. So whoever is uh, silly enough to to shell out any money for that tape is is going to be bitterly disappointed when it arrives. The other interesting things about this auction, I mean that that escape demo CD is just laughable. I mean that's like a one pound blank CD that you buy in the store with a label on it. Like there's anybody could make that, right? There's, there's nothing exactly. that gives that any value. So I cannot imagine who would bid on that unless they are very, very naive. But the other thing that, that popped out to me is amongst the, the videotapes of uh, uh, appear to be stuff from the, the, the Brunei concert. One of them says Michael Jackson, Brunei concert. And then, Elsewhere on the same video cassette, it says Polo with Prince Charles. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is going on there? Is that like MJ like and the Sultan like watching Prince Charles play polo and just laughing at him? Or like, what is it? Like, I want to know what's that, what's on that tape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm with you, Casey. I I, uh, I watched the Brunei concert the other night, and there's all this footage at the very start of the concert of like famous uh you know guests from brunei coming into the show and i i like that kind of thing behind the scenes what was going on around the concert who was michael hanging out with and so yeah maybe there is some cool stuff on those tapes who knows well another one of them says palace interiors which uh if it's literally just a video of you know the palace then it's not very interesting but if it's like michael walking around saying oh that's cool that might be quite funny to watch but they yeah. need to give more information about these tapes. Like, take some screenshots or something. There may be a reason that there's no information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's it, isn't it? And uh, I, I'd say it would have to be Frank Cassio because this is the sort of... In the previous Got to Have Rock and Roll auctions, this was the same thing going on. They'd be like, what was the last one? There was one that was a CD, a burnt CD, that apparently had all the Cassio tracks on them called Bible. And it was being positioned as some kind of unreleased Michael Jackson album, and then oh my god, it just didn't it didn't ridiculous. it say it was Michael's personal copy of his unreleased album or something? So it was something definitely stupid. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime you see gotta have rock and roll dot com, back away slowly is what I've got to say. Mm. Okay, um, next news topic: new interviews. I've only seen bits of one of these but apparently there's three new interviews out with michael jackson collaborators one from teddy riley one from michael bush and one from greg fillingaines i haven't seen the teddy riley or michael bush ones the greg fillingaines one though i've watched parts of and it's really really interesting i can't wait to sit down and watch the whole thing through it's really long it's like two hours long it's like a zoom call with uh, greg and a couple other guys and they're talking specific details about touring and working with Michael Jackson. There's a really cool story in there. Uh, I'll just tell one of the stories. But basically, Michael Jackson and Greg Fillingaines were working on the Destiny album together. And Greg um, was in the studio and he could hear this really cool, like around the corner, somebody on a drum kit banging away and doing this really cool funky rhythm. And Greg was like wondering who the heck was that? Cause he didn't know, you know, which drummer was in the studio at that point. And, and he, and he turned the corner to see who it was. And he was really surprised. It was Michael sitting on the drums, just banging out this cool rhythm. And Greg that he was saying that that was one of the first moments in his work with Michael, that he realized that Michael really had musical chops 
even beyond his reputation. Um, so that was cool to hear from from Greg. Uh, there's lots of information about the tours as well, and it's real too. Like he he doesn't just sugarcoat things. He talks about the troubles that Michael had to face, the ever mounting troubles, I should say, that Michael had to face after the bad tour and the toll that took on Michael, and the fact that he didn't actually want a tour, but the reasons that he had to actually get back out on the road, even though he didn't want to. So it's a good interview. Strongly recommend going to watch it. I can't wait to dig in and watch the rest. Guys, did you watch that one or even perhaps the Teddy Riley and Michael Bush ones? The Teddy one, I wasn't sure if it like is from a TV program or something because it looks very like high production quality. And what I saw just seemed to be like a clip from uh, a larger thing. Um, so I've I've seen that that clip nothing beyond that and like you uh i skimmed the the greg one and found it absolutely fascinating um looking forward to to watching the whole thing um you did say it's like two or three hours long but there is a whole section where it's just like greg playing mj songs on the piano which is awesome but if you're looking for specific tidbits then you don't necessarily need to watch it you know start to finish they did put a whole chapter thing in the description so you can just kind of click back and forth and and go go through it um but yeah, fascinating interview. Greg's one of those people I would listen to him talk for hours. So glad this stuff's out there. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I had the the great fortune of seeing um, the Greg Fillingain seminar live that day, so got to um, you know see the whole thing and and his interaction with um, with the chat was really interesting. Greg is is I'm with you, Casey. Like I could listen to him talk um, for days. Um, in 2010. Greg Fillengaines and Saida Garrett and a whole number of industry folks that had worked with Michael did a symposium at Columbia in Chicago. And it was such an incredible experience in the interplay between Greg Fillengaines and Saida Garrett. It's like comedy hour. The two of them together is incredible. <laughs> um, but there is a really sweet moment um, with Greg Fillengaines um, in that seminar. I think it's toward the end where he gets up from the um, from the camera and shows um, this piece that he has hanging on the wall that I believe either Michael or Quincy gave to him um, from off the wall. I don't want to spoil it, um, but it's really interesting, um, this this piece that he has hanging on the wall and the story behind it. But um, And I watched the Teddy Riley clip. Um, Casey, I think you're right. It looks like it was just a snippet from um, a larger conversation. And I I kind of skimmed through um, the Michael Bush interview. I didn't realize it was over an hour. So um, I am interested in going back. The The really sad thing is, you know, he's now become also problematic. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I really loved his book and the stories that he shared in there. But, you know, now there's always kind of that question in the back of my head of, you know, is he being truthful? So that's a problem, not only for Bush, but for Teddy. Mm -hmm. um, yes unfortunately so we're talking about new interviews with three people but two of them unfortunately now have a history of alleged dishonesty when it comes to talking about michael so it's really disappointing it's a shame because you know potentially they have great and valuable information to share but the information is all all but useless you know when when the information is coming from somebody who tried to auction a uh, a Michael Jackson cardboard cutout signed by Michael Jackson, which was not manufactured until a year after his death, mm. that's very discrediting. Um, you know, so it, it's it's almost like nothing 
that person has to say is of any value to anyone because you cannot attach any weight to it. So that that is a real shame, I think. But I, I think I'll definitely check out the Greg one at some point. Well, that sounds like I might have to set aside an afternoon or something. All right, guys, moving on to our last couple of news topics. And these are the bigger ones that we're going to dig into here um, uh, at, at the conclusion of our show. Uh, the first one is all about Wade Robson's case against Michael Jackson, which has now been tentatively dismissed uh, by the judge Mark A. Young. I can't imagine many of our listeners are not familiar with the case, but for those of you that aren't, Robson, of course, was a friend to Michael Jackson and his family uh, were friends to Michael for for many years following the bad tour in the late 80s. And Robson's cases that he's brought against Michael's estate and companies were based basically on a, on a claim that he'd been sexually harassed and abused by Michael when he was a child. But that was always problematic because Wade Robertson obviously testified in Michael Jackson's defense in the 2005 child molestation trial and continued to basically support Michael and sing his praises well after his passing. It was only in 2013, really, when Robson had been uh, rejected by the estate to work on some Michael Jackson-related projects, I think including the Cirque du Soleil show, that he started making these claims, which culminated, obviously, in the, in the documentary that came out a couple of years ago, Leaving Neverland. Robson was following that, joined by James Safechuck, who also made sexual molestation claims, appeared in the documentary and, and so on. And his case was dismissed last year. And now Judge Young is saying that this this particular case is going to be dismissed or is tentatively dismissed because there's no trialable issue. Charlie, would you be able to provide more details on this decision? Yeah, so... Initially, Robson tried to bring a creditor's claim against the estate. So he essentially filed a a creditor's claim under seal, which means in secret, he filed a demand for money. And he filed that demand on grounds that he had not known that Michael had an estate that he could claim money from. He had recently realized that he had been abused and had subsequent to that had discovered that Michael Jackson had an estate from which he could claim money. He argued that his lack of knowledge that Michael had an estate meant that the fact that he was out of time for claiming from Michael's estate was not a problem, that he was claiming at the earliest opportunity. He made that claim under oath. In that case, the estate went for a summary judgment because uh, so a summary judgment is where you dispense with the need for a jury and it usually favors the plaintiff the person making the allegation because the judge must in a summary judgment assume anything which a rational juror could believe to be true so as you go as the judge goes through the case uh, every claim that's made by the plaintiff which it is found a jury could reasonably believe must be assumed to be true the reason the estate went for a summary judgment was because the evidence was overwhelming that Wade Robson had lied under oath about not knowing that Michael had an estate because he had in fact collaborated with Michael's estate on past projects and had negotiated with Michael's estate emailed Michael's estate, met with Michael's estate, asked for jobs from Michael's estate. So 
his subsequent claim not to have known that Michael had an estate, the judge ruled that no rational juror could believe that. And on summary judgment, his creditor's claim towards the estate was thrown out of court. He then had to change tact. With the estate out of bounds, what he did was try to pursue a different legal avenue, which was to sue companies which existed before Michael died and still existed subsequent to his death. And he was essentially arguing that these companies owed Wade Robson a duty of care because they had in some way been involved in his alleged abuse. So, for example, Wade Robson had been signed as part of his rap debacle, whatever that was that he was in, some sort of child duo rap thing. He'd been signed... Quo, yeah, he'd, uh, (laughs) yeah, he'd been signed to um, MJJ Productions, I think. So he was able to try to sue MJJ Productions and say, as an employee of your company, you owed me a duty of care, and in failing to uh, exercise that duty of care and allowing me to be abused by Michael Jackson you are culpable for what happened to me, so I am now suing you. And he filed lawsuits against a large number of companies that were previously affiliated with Michael Jackson in some way. Now, that case has been thrown out of court repeatedly now on grounds that, essentially, Michael Jackson was the owner-operator of those companies. So who is the ultimate boss of MJJ Productions? The ultimate boss is Michael Jackson. So effectively, he's arguing that a company owned and controlled by Michael Jackson owed him a duty of care and should have prevented Michael Jackson from abusing him. So clearly on a logical basis, that case fails because a company in which everybody answers to Michael Jackson has no control over Michael Jackson. He has control over them. So that is the basis on which his latest case has been thrown out. And it's the same legal basis on which uh, James Safechuck's case was thrown out last year. Now, James Safechuck has already appealed, I believe, or certainly filed notice that he wishes to appeal So I would assume that Wade Robson would do the exact same thing. So although I see a lot of Michael Jackson fans sort of celebrating this tentative ruling that his case will be thrown out, this is not the end. This is the beginning of another appeal, almost certainly. We're just stuck on a hamster wheel of the case gets thrown out and then they appeal, the case gets thrown out and then they appeal. It just goes on and on and on course they don't want any money we must point out so i suppose the other thing to mention because i saw some fans saying today that this was disappointing to them i saw this on facebook this was disappointing to them because they had hoped that this case would go to trial and that when the case got to trial michael would be exonerated and that would be the end of the matter forever now in theory that could happen, but there's something important which bears highlighting about civil trials. Civil trials do not have the same burden of proof as criminal trials. In a criminal trial, the legal standard is that somebody must be proved guilty beyond any reasonable doubt. 
and if they are not proved guilty beyond any reasonable doubt, then you must acquit. In a civil case, the burden of proof is more likely than not. So what that means is if you are 50.0001% sure that Michael did it, then you find that he did it. You find against him. So essentially, the burden of proof in a civil case is no greater than a coin toss. It's a coin toss. When you go into a civil court, it's a coin toss whether you win or lose. It's 50.0000001%. That's all you have to be to convict or the equivalent of a conviction in a civil case. So... I think there is no guarantee, as flaky as these allegations are, and as confused and ever-changing, and obviously directly contradicting the sworn testimony in, in at least two previous rounds of evidence that he's given, there is no guarantee that even though this case seems to be complete, like have more holes than a sieve, the, co the burden of proof is so rubbish in a, in a civil court, the burden of proof is so practically non-existent, it's a coin toss, that it, I think the estate is trying to make sure this does not go to a trial, because there is no guarantee that this... I mean, there's never a guarantee in any criminal case, but in a criminal case, I think this case is so flaky that the chances of a conviction would be practically non-existent if Michael was alive and able to be tried. But in a civil case... The burden of proof is so shockingly low that who knows what a jury would do, especially after the Leaving Neverland situation where that documentary was just unquestioningly accepted, amplified, promoted, endorsed, fawned over. I mean, there was no journalism at all in the way that that was presented by the media. They just completely swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Nobody investigated. Nobody questioned anything. I mean, it was a disgrace, journalistically, the way the media covered that. So almost anyone that's walking into that civil courtroom as a potential juror will have been exposed either to leaving Neverland, or at the very least, to months of completely uncritical, unquestioning client journalism promoting leaving Neverland. So the jury is going to be catastrophically tainted so I think the fans who are hoping for a trial are maybe not fully cognizant of what they're wishing for. Be careful what you wish for. But this is not the end anyway. I doubt whether it will ever get to trial, but I think we've probably got at least another couple of years of the uh, the appeal hamster wheel to look forward to. Yeah, I think uh, that's, that all makes sense to me, Charlie. I think for me, one of the most frustrating things about the quote-unquote documentary was we've seen this case fall apart for like eight years, like repeatedly, like pretty much since day one. And now all of a sudden you've got your last ditch attempt to try and sway the public opinion with your nonsense film. But what's what's happening now is what you know, why is why is Dan Reed still there? Why is he still filming? Like what's his game plan? who's going to watch it, right? All you've got is your case continuing to fall apart. Like, what's your next move? It's just the whole thing is ridiculous to me. But this latest throwing out was inevitable. But as you say, they will likely appeal and it'll get thrown out again and again and again. Just the whole thing is just getting beyond parody now.
Charlie, I'm curious, um, you know, at some point they must run out of appeals, I'm assuming, or can this just go on in perpetuity? I think there will come a point where they cannot appeal any further, but I'm not as au fait with the American system as I am with the UK system. So all I know is that Safechuck, I believe, filed notice to appeal very shortly after his case was thrown out on the same ground. So I think with both of them, we're looking at at least one more round of appeal. And with the COVID backlog in the courts, who knows how long that's going to to take to get dealt with. And then it may be the case that they can take it to higher and higher courts, but I don't know how high they can go and what the, the standard is for how they get there. And you made a really good point when, um, you know, I had planned to um, to try to go to the court last week and then it got postponed and I won't be able to be there on Monday. Um, but there are, you know, a number of friends of ours that are will be there to see it firsthand. You know, you made a really good point that they were given this you know, huge spotlight. If this wasn't about money and this was about victims' rights and and not being silenced, they've done absolutely nothing to promote, um, you know, support for victims. It has been nothing but the quest for money. Dan Reed's ego, um, and the same probably holds true for for Wade and and for Jimmy. Their ego and their need for money will never let them admit that they were wrong and to to reverse course. I have to say that because of leaving Neverland, I was never more proud of the Michael Jackson fan base in my life. It's being an MJ fan, you know, has been not only a struggle while Michael was still alive, but, you know, after he passed, there was so much infighting in the beginning and, and so many clicks and, you know, a lot of drama in the fan base and, you know, emotions were running high and, you know, people were just behaving very bizarrely. Um, but, you know, if, if Leaving Neverland did anything um, for the fan base, it, it definitely solidified that there are a lot of intelligent and highly motivated researchers. Um, so how you can still stand by a statement when there's there's actually county permitting that proves that there is a lie, I don't understand how anyone who's willing to take a few minutes out of their day to either watch, you know, square one or, or do some research can still believe that this was anything other than extortion. In the HBO case, the estate tried to subpoena all of the unreleased interview footage from uh, Leaving Neverland. And as part of his statement to the court, I forget whether this statement was filed over that subpoena or whether it was over his request to film the proceedings, but Dan Reed submitted a statement to the court where he said, we have thoroughly investigated every alleged discrepancy with our TV show and absolutely none of them hold any weight. There's no basis for any of the criticism or the complaints about what we did. And I just could not believe that he would commit that egregious, mendacious claim to paper and then sign it and submit it to a court. His whole position on the train station was effectively that Safechuck, in his sworn statements, had lied because Safechuck, in his sworn statements, said he was never touched after 92. Reed said there was no disputing that the train station was built subsequent to 92, but the truth was that Safechuck had been abused 
all the way into the train station era. So effectively, his defense of his documentary was to accuse his own star witness of serial perjury. And that's just one of the complaints or criticisms about it. You know, is um, the fact that he omits the years of of legal battles over this uh, lawsuit and the the many discrediting things that have happened. You know, Wade Robson being caught lying about the estate uh, is not in his TV show. Wade Robson being caught repeatedly lying about how many emails he possesses and then what those emails are about and who those emails are to and why he shouldn't have to release them. The, the massive ongoing war over those emails where he was just caught being dishonest over and over again, not mentioned in uh, Reed's TV show. And it's a perfectly valid criticism of Dan Reed to say that if you're going to spend four hours promoting these two men and unquestioningly presenting their allegations as facts, and you omit instances where they have been caught in this lawsuit being dishonest, then that's shoddy journalism. And for him to say in a sworn statement to the court that we've investigated and there's no merit to any criticism of what we did is just madness. Anyway, I can't remember how we got on to Reed. I think you're right, Casey, that he's on record and quite freely admits that he fully believes uh, Wade Robson and James Safechuck and that he saw no reason to question them or present any opposing view. So um, it's obvious the narrative that he would have hoped to tell in his follow-up to Leaving Neverland. And I think that what has in fact happened in uh, the court hearings he's been filming has been disastrous for his narrative because the estate has won everything. It's won every single motion, every, every issue has won since he started filming. And it's one on the law. It's not one through legal trickery. It's not one through hypnotizing the judge. You know, it's, 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 they've won on the law because the case has no basis in law. And in addition to that, he's been filming when Wade and James's lawyer was being chewed out by the judge and financially sanctioned for his abusive treatment of a, a female lawyer for the estate. He's been filming in court when a lawyer for the Chandler family was opposing Robertson and Safechuck's attempts to force Jordan Chandler and his family to give depositions in this case. And their lawyer said in, in court on the phone line, there's no evidence that Jordan Chandler was abused. I mean, everything he's filmed has been massively detrimental to the narrative that he would want to be portraying. So it is difficult to see where he could go with his sequel, but he has, I think, signed up to do it. So he's in a very difficult position. And, and my own gut feeling is that he is, in the absence of the story that he would have wanted to tell, he's going to spend the whole thing settling scores and effectively exacting petty revenge on everybody who criticised and undermined his first TV show by sort of manipulatively editing and portraying what they've said and trying to make them look like fringe lunatics and victim blamers and uh, fanatics and conspiracy theorists. I think it's effectively going to be a very petty, score-settling revenge show because I don't think he's got anything else. But anyway, that's sort of a, a massive tangent. I agree with, with all of that, Charlie. My personal hope would be that, that Reed just, you know, 
cancels the project, disappears quietly into the night, but I think his ego will not allow him to do that. I mean, you're talking about a guy who thought it was perfectly acceptable to do, you know, photo shoots with two people that he believes to be abuse victims and release a soundtrack to Spotify and make fake Twitter accounts to troll Michael Jackson fans. These are not the actions of a you know, credible filmmaker. So we'll we'll just have to wait and see. I think the the petty judgment against fans narrative is very likely if he does try and complete a, a follow-up. But it will only shoot his own credibility down further, in my opinion. So, Really great thoughts there, all of you. Again, thank you very much for breaking that down, Charlie, especially the legal uh, proceedings that are, that are about to take place. We're recording this, of course, a few days before that dismissal really is going to happen. But hopefully we can get this commentary out as soon as possible so it still makes sense. All right, guys, let's take our second and final break to talk about the MJ Cast's merch shop. You can access it at themjcast.com slash shop. And we have got eight great designs available at our shop. You can get these designs on a heap of different products, including T-shirts and mugs, hoodies, coffee cups and phone cases, tote bags, all kinds of different amazing things. And we love seeing our listeners send in photos of them with our our merch out in the wild promoting Michael Jackson and the MJ cast. Uh, we've got a heap of different designs that you can get on there. Like I said just before, there's eight. Uh, we've got our classic sunset logo. We've got all nine of our seasonal logos in a grid pattern in one place. Uh, we've got some cool retro pixel art style designs featuring Michael Jackson uh, and also his brothers as a part of the Jacksons during the victory tour. And we've got some cool text-based designs as well. You've probably seen people getting around with those Helvetica list style uh, shirts. Uh, well, we've got some of those. We've got all the Jackson brothers' names on the on the design. We've got all the Captain EO characters' names in one place, all of Michael Jackson's solo albums, and our brand new design, which features the three T Brothers' names all in, in one spot. So anyway, heaps of great designs on heaps of great products. We really hope you get to go there and, and grab some, some different things. Super fast shipping, great customer support from Redbubble. All proceeds go to show running costs, charity, and equipment. For example, the charity donation that we just made to Give India. This is one of the things where we, we love doing the MJ cast, but when we get to give back through charity, we, we absolutely just go, wow, this is, uh, this is a, you know, really the reason why we do a lot of what we do. So please support the MJ cast and by extension, also support the charities that we regularly donate to. Promote the MJ cast and Michael Jackson all at the same time by grabbing some cool merch from the mjcast.com slash shop and send some cool pictures through to us at the mjcast at icloud.com and we'll ensure that we share those, those great pics on social media. Thank you so much to all of our listeners who have already supported the MJ cast through going to the mjcast.com slash shop. Let's get back to it. Okay, so we're going to move on to our final topic of this particular episode. And this is really a, a comparative discussion, I guess, all between the Prince and Michael Jackson states and how they've handled their respective artists' legacies. A tale of two estates, if you will. Prince Estate has famously released quite a number of projects that have resonated really well within the fan community and the broader music community very very highly regarded 
and the critical reviews of those products have been really positive. That contrasts fairly heavily with the Michael Jackson estate where we could probably safely say that most of the projects they've released since Michael passed away have been fairly lackluster and that is an ongoing source of frustration for Michael Jackson fans who know that there's incredible material there ready for the estate to to remaster and put out and all of those kind of different things. The Prince Estate has recently released a new project called Welcome to America and Casey, of course, uh, you and, and your partner Kim Camellia are both a part of the Violet Reality and you guys recently put out a YouTube video that's called Prince's Legacy Five Years After His Death. I think what we might start with seeing is that all of you are, are, are big Prince fans as well as Michael Jackson fans. Casey, if you could just sort of begin by giving your perception on how the Prince estate has done since Prince's passing five years ago and just generally how happy you are with the job they've done and how happy the Prince community is with the job they've done and then we'll, we'll go around the table there. Sure. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say, I don't think too many people in the Prince fan community would disagree with this, that the overall perception of the vast majority of what the Prince estate has done over the last five years is overwhelmingly positive. And also that there is a momentum where uh, what they're doing, the quality of what they're doing just keeps getting better and better. In comparison with uh, the Michael estate, I did an interview with uh, hitsdailydouble.com um, that was published on the 21st of April for the fifth anniversary of Prince's passing. Uh, it was done by an incredible writer called uh, Keith Murphy, who writes for Vibe and uh, Wax Poetics and stuff like that. And he got Troy Carter, who is the administrator of the Prince estate or, or the musical, the creative director. He got him to to comment for that article as well. And uh, I did notice that Troy took a very subliminal shot back at the uh, the MJ estate, which uh, the MJ estate actually started that by a very tone deaf comment they made on their website a few months ago, where they said uh, the the MJ estate is the envy of all other estates or, or something. Um, quite a ridiculous comment to make. But Troy basically did a quote in this this same piece that I was in, where he said, "Well, other estates." value commerce over art and we try and balance both of them equally and uh, i thought that was a very subtle way of uh, of getting his his rebuttal into uh whoever had authorized that comment on the uh the mj estates website but when you look at just the the amount of care put into the projects and the range of different things that they have put out we have had the original set which is Prince's vocal versions of songs that he famously gave away, like Nothing Compares to You, Jungle Love, songs like that. Uh, we've had the piano and a microphone rehearsal tape, which was a, a lost rehearsal tape from 1983, uh, remastered in amazing quality, where Prince is starting the, the seeds of several songs that would go on to be big songs on just him and, and a piano. And more recently, we've had the 1999 Super Deluxe set and the Sign of the Times Super Deluxe set, which... It's it's almost impossible to critique those from an art, artistic and care level of what's gone into them. You've got heavily detailed liner notes from not just people that were around at those times, but you know people like you know, Lenny Kravitz and Dave Chappelle and this very intellectual commentary from a range of different people. You've got dozens upon dozens upon dozens of outtakes from the relevant eras remastered to a very high quality. You've got unreleased live concert footage from those eras. 
you've got just amazing quality actual packaging and uh, it's clear that they've really looked at the details of everything to put these sets together um just that that level of just quality and care put into it is i think the most important thing and i think you know people can nitpick about minor things but the big picture is they are putting out the stuff that the fans want them to put out it's really that simple when i started taking notice of how great a job they appeared to be doing and this is kind of coming from somebody who is a prince fan but definitely not um as hardcore as as yourself but still a, a, i would say a big um starting to become quite a big fan especially of prince's live um concerts mm. and when i started really to take notice i would say was when they when they dropped that live show that Prince did, I think it was in conjunction with the 1999 release. Mm. It might've been, but when they put that live concert straight up on, on YouTube uh, at Paisley park and that was, and that combined with the podcast they were doing as well, the more behind the scenes discussion with uh, people who contributed to the albums. That's when I noticed it was like, okay, these guys are really pushing the boundaries here of what, what should be happening over at uh, the Michael Jackson estate as well. Can you just walk us through this latest um, project and what that's all about before we hear from, from Christina and Charlie? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So welcome to America is the, the project that's coming out uh, this summer. And uh, it's it's up for pre-order now in, in in various formats, and the promotional sort of campaign has started. There was a piece on uh, on sixty minutes, the the TV show in in the states that had uh, interviewed Morris Hayes, uh, Prince's keyboard player, who's actually the co-producer of the Welcome to America album, which is uh, a very interesting point because Prince very very rarely. Uh, allowed somebody that level of collaboration on, on a production level. Pretty much this album uh, with Morris and the stuff that he put out in uh, the, the years just before he passed uh, with co-production by uh, Josh Welton, those are pretty much the only solid examples in terms of albums where uh, there were co-producers involved. And Morris is somebody who is absolutely beloved in the in the Prince fan base, not just because he was around for an incredibly long time. Uh, certainly by Prince's standards, he was in the NPG kind of on and off from the early 90s until around, around when this album was made and a little bit after the Welcome to America project. So this whole album was recorded in early 2011. I believe it was, I believe the majority of it was done in March of 2011, this, this whole album with Morris co-producing. There was a tour that went along with it, the Welcome to America tour, uh, which I saw the UK date, which was at the Hop Farm Festival. Um, and the reason that you knew it was, you know, not just the name of the tour and was part of a bigger thing was because the UK and some of the Europe dates were bizarrely, or what seemed to be quite bizarrely titled at the time, Welcome to America Euro Tour. Or something like that. So it's like, okay, this is the name of a thing. Like he's not just going to change it to, you know, welcome to Europe or whatever. But then the album, for whatever reason, it's kind of unknown. It just didn't come out. Prince moved on. Um, I have several theories that I think are pretty bang on based upon people that I've spoke to. You know, I have a good relationship with Morris. Uh, we've interviewed at length Elisa Fiorillo, who was a backing singer for the NPG and is all over this album. She actually has a co-lead vocal on one of the songs on this this upcoming album. Um, so we kind of kind of have some insights and theories, but the kind of, you know, the salient point is that the album just didn't come out at the time. Um, so it really is a sort of time capsule of this entire finished, you know, produced, mixed, mastered 
packaging was done at the time, photo shoots were done at the time, merch was done at the time, but the album just didn't come out and, and now it is. Um, so it's really that kind of the first time that the Prince estate is really putting out what was a completed project that just didn't come out of time. Everything else has been these deluxe sets without takes from the eras and, uh, you know, the rehearsal uh, thing that we mentioned earlier, piano and a microphone and, and that sort of thing. It's a real milestone moment. And they are also including a Blu-ray of a full live show from the, uh, the LA section of the tour, uh, which was mm. in April of, of 2011, which is incredibly a high quality footage and I think it's going to be amazing to see. Okay, now you're making me jealous. So over at the Michael Jackson estate, we have to deal with amazing things such as um, Timberland and Afrojack uh, remixes featuring Pitbull. Mm. We uh, we deal with VHS quality concerts. Uh, we deal with fake songs. Um, <laughs> not, not, <laughs> to, not to forget no. the uh, free piece of chalk. <laughs> That's right. The ch- oh, that chocolate was wonderful. <laughs> we have some amazing things happening over at the Envy. Now, I I guess I just wanted to know, like, there, there. I mean, there's a distinct lack of care for authenticity in the Michael Jackson estate projects. What would you say about the Prince Estate's focus on authenticity? Do you guys also get remixes coming out and different things like that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. I think the most that you can say which is a, f- a fair critique that um, maybe upsets certain people in the fan base more than the others, is that some of the stuff on the originals uh, album and maybe some of the 1999 stuff, people were not necessarily happy with the way that they were mixed by the engineer that kind of was tasked to to just you know make demos sound releasable. There's a few questions about that and some of the splicing of songs on the originals where people will say, well, is it really the original? Because there was a couple of cases where they brought in some musical parts from the version of the song that was released by the person that Prince gave the song to. So those bits were kind of spliced back into the original demo that didn't have them. There was a couple of instances of that. But to me, these are all very, very minor things. And when they have been raised, the estate seems to, to listen and, and not you know, repeat those mistakes. Um, but authenticity, I think, is really the primary concern uh, of the of the estate. Christina, how do I follow that? <laughs> um, I couldn't agree more with Casey. The five year video that that you uh, put out, I just I really loved that and um, really appreciated all of your insights. You know, I, I love that you included um, was it Troy that said, you know, they're trying to find the balance between commerce and art. And I, I think that is probably the most glaring difference between the two estates, where with the Prince estate, they've gone back to the individuals that worked with Prince on those original recordings. You know, they've gone back to even their art directors. You know, they've worked again with Sam Jennings and with Ashton Shahidi and with Steve mm-hmm. Park. Not only is the music and video quality there and the amount of it, the the look and feel of those releases is in line with the original releases. Jamin and Charlie, in your conversations in the last episode, one of you had said that, you know, yes, the MJ estate is making money, but is it making money because it's Michael Jackson? And how much more money could they be making if they were listening to the fans? And I think that's another, you know, glaring difference between if you go to Prince's website, there's actually an option for fans to leave feedback about what are things we'd like to see. 
Now, I have no idea if that's like a comment box situation where no one's actually looking at it. But based on what they've been releasing, it seems to me that they're listening. Right after Prince passed and they were doing certain things at Paisley Park that the fans didn't feel good about, they seemed to be listening and they made changes accordingly. Friends of mine used to give tours during the celebrations, you know, back in the early 2000s when when Prince would open Paisley Park to the fans. And some of the fans were going on these tours after he passed and realizing that they had misinformation, that they were telling fans, you know, the wrong thing. So they listened to that feedback and they better educated their tour guides. So I I haven't seen one instance yet where the Prince estate has gone tone deaf on us, um, to use a term one of you had used earlier, where with the MJ estate, it's like they they're trolling us at this point. It's like they're they're continually releasing poor quality. I mean, let's talk about the shirt design that they released, <laughs> where there is is a light or a stage monitor wrapped in plastic, yep. left in the That's design. A camera, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the social media posts where they're just the caption just doesn't match the picture. I mean, how oh, many times has that happened by now? <laughs> it's terrible. Oh. On the, I think it was last year's anniversary. The cover photo that they put on their Facebook page looked like something that you would design in Microsoft Word in like 1997. <laughs> and yes, I'm being really petty right now, but it's like if if John Bronco wants to say they're the envy then they need to put the work behind that because otherwise he's just, he's making a fool of himself. And I I think while the commerce part, they seem to have have been doing really well, there is no art behind it. Now, the other side is, you know, Prince was much more prolific. And I think this is an excuse that they use quite often that, well, there just isn't the music. There isn't a vault for Michael. And I, I'm sure that that's the case to some extent, but even what they're releasing, they could be doing in a much higher quality in a much more thoughtful manner. Um, you know, mm-hmm. how long are we going to have to scream for thriller and ghosts and all of that, you know, the packaging that could be put into that. I can't keep up with the the posthumous releases with Prince. It stressed me out for a long time, but then I realized what a beautiful thing that is that it'll never end. There will always be new music. There will always be, you know, and Prince fans, we lived a lot of our life on bootlegs and bootleg Mm -hmm. quality. There are things that DVDs that have circulated for years that are of the worst quality (laughs) and the fans will still go after it because it's something that we've never seen before. I, I don't know what the MJ estate needs to do to get themselves right with the fans. But it's it's a shame. I can give one perfect example of that excuse of there not being a vault just being absolute BS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Prince Estate, not everything is these, you know, these big compilations, these big deluxe sets with, you know, 50 outtakes or whatever. One example of something they did really well was when they just dropped the uh, acoustic demo of I Feel For You out of nowhere on 7-inch vinyl, just like one day. Here it is. Hey, look, we found it. Here's the lyrics on the artwork and you can order the 7-inch vinyl now and it'll be out in two weeks or whatever. And that was that was the whole project, right? So there's no reason you can't find these artifacts, whether it's demos of, you know, uh, songs that, that came out in earlier forms or whatever. And I, I can't... I can't go into too much detail about this. Uh, you know, Jamin may know about it. We may have spoken about it before. I got to hear 
the unreleased Michael song, um, the Sly Stone cover of Hot Fun in the Summertime um, that was remixed during the escape sessions by uh, D'Angelo, Questlove, Eric Leeds, Jesse Johnson, uh, Pino Palladino and Mary J. Blige all all on that song. Um, I can't talk about how I heard it, but it is fantastic. It's it's releasable. Absolutely. It always has been since it since it was done. Where is it? You know, that was done a decade ago and nothing they can't you know it's just ridiculous so how many more examples are there probably a lot but they just don't want to do it they don't want to take the time to do it and the only outcome that you can think of is that they just don't care about the art they've proven that at every single step from all the examples that we we just gave you know it even became a parody on twitter i can't remember when it was we had this hashtag going tweet like the mj estate where you'd put an mj picture and a completely wrong (laughs) caption and it was really funny (laughs) you know that just goes to show and i think you know the reality of the music business now is there is not giant money in you know releasing physical products so you have to care about the art to do it it's all well and good that the MJ estate can license heal the world to a film in China for a million dollars. Cool. But if you're doing stuff just for the, for the revenue, then then just be open about it. Right. I mean, don't pretend that you care about the art when all of your actions stay otherwise. Absolutely. All right. Well, I agree with some of what I've just heard and I disagree with some of what I've just heard. So Casey said the quality from the Prince estate keeps getting better and better i broadly agree with that uh he said it's difficult to criticize a lot of their projects from an artistic perspective and the care that's gone into them i broadly agree with that he quoted somebody saying that other estates put commerce over art whereas the prince estate tries to balance them equally i would say if that is what they're trying to do. They're trying and failing. A lot of their projects are commercial failures because they release things which are either of absolutely no commercial value or they release things that people would go out and buy but they charge about three times what they're worth if you want to buy them. A very clear example of their lack of business sense was after he died, A few days before he died, he actually summoned fans to his house and told them that he wanted his next release to be the last two concerts that he performed, his piano and a mic shows uh, from, I think, I forget where they were, maybe Atlanta. um, Atlanta, yeah, it was Atlanta. So he was on record as saying that that was what he wanted released next. He died a few days later, and what happened was his greatest hits packages... And Purple Rain sold like hotcakes. They sold millions and millions of copies. The Prince estate, well, what the Michael Jackson estate did when Michael died, which was very effective, and I disagree with the way they went about it in the way that they manipulatively edited it to portray a false narrative, but they recognized the value of the last thing Michael Jackson did right before he died. They released... This Is It, their whole first posthumous release was centered around This Is It, around the concert film and soundtrack, and it was a record breaker. It it became the biggest, highest grossing concert film in world history. 
the Prince Estate, having just shifted millions and millions and millions of greatest hits albums in the immediate aftermath of Prince's death, they stayed in the chart for months after he died, decided it would be a fantastic idea if their first posthumous album was a greatest hits album, which they released immediately, literally months after these greatest hits albums had been flying off the shelves. It was called Forever. It didn't even go top 20 in the UK, and it didn't even go top 30 in America. Because everybody who wanted a Prince Greatest Hits album had just gone out and bought one. So this was a catastrophically stupid idea. Next idea that they have is, why don't we re-release Purple Rain? Which everybody's literally just gone out and bought. So they announce a Purple Rain box set which is supposed to be this all-singing, all-dancing box set with two live concert DVDs in it. Then they cock it up and it comes out with one in it because one of them wasn't finished on time. It, it, charted, it charted better than the Greatest Hits album, but it didn't do amazingly. And I remember hearing at the time that the labels had somewhat lost confidence in posthumous Prince releases because these things were not charting in the way that they were hoping that they would. The next thing that I remember them doing was releasing a half an hour fuzzy tape of Prince noodling about on a piano. Literally, not even something he'd recorded in a studio, but a cassette recording of Prince fiddling about on a piano for his own amusement in a rehearsal with a lot of hiss on it. It was better quite, I mean, it was already circulating as a bootleg amongst the fan community anyway. But it had no real commercial value, did not chart very well. It retailed for $17.99, and it was 33, 34 minutes long. Not a particular chart buster, right? So then they start releasing these completely obscure things that it's just like, why would you ever think that this was a good idea to release? Like some crazy remix album that he made for a Versace catwalk thing, like in about 1995, they released that. It, it didn't even crack the top 150 in America, the, the Billboard top one. I think it was something like 180 or 170 it came in at. They released some other crazy thing, again, that is like, why would, why? Called pop it was something about pop life so his majesty's pop life that charted even worse than the versace thing it came in about 190 or something on the billboard chart so these are all dismal commercial failures then the 1999 box set comes out now the 1999 box set is very similar in both size and content to bad 25 uh, bad 25 was three cds and a dvd 1999 set was five CDs and a DVD. Bad 25, when you bought it in the shop, was £35. 1999 box set, when I went into a shop with the idea that I might buy it, was £90. It was about £89.99 for a box set of the same size with only two more discs in. One of those discs was radio edits which are of absolutely no use to anyone they're just the album tracks but shorter why why would you even put that in the set so i didn't buy that i'm a huge hardcore prince fan i've bought almost none of these posthumous releases i'm not paying 
£90 for what is essentially a £45 box set. That's craziness. And then they did the same thing the next year with Sign of the Times. They release a, a nine-disc set and they charge £160 for it, which is insanity. That's just complete insanity. And But enough of the fact, you know, uh, Christina mentioned that the Prince fan community is a community which has for many years traded in bootlegs of the worst quality, I think was the word that she used. So this is a fan community, a very hardcore, small fan community that will, if the Prince estate puts something out and it's £160, a lot of them will buy two of them. They'll buy one that they never take out of the wrapping, right? But that's a very small market. And they could have done so much better. They could have, you know, like, that's just a ludicrous price, £160 for that said, ludicrous. And now they're bringing out this album called Welcome to America, a 2010 album that didn't even pass Prince's quality control test in 2010, which was not very high. Only eight of the songs are actually brand new out of the 12, and they're including a DVD in it, a DVD of a concert, but the only way you can get the DVD in the UK is to pay £150 for a copy of the album. And all you get is the album. So they're charging £150 for one album with a DVD in it. Whereas last year they were charging £160, which in itself was too much, for a nine disc set. So now they're completely taking the piss, in my opinion. This is just a piss take. And... That is not a balance of commerce and art. That's not a healthy balance. They're taking advantage of a fan base which is very completist, very obsessive, has traded for many years in very low-quality bootleg products because they're obsessed with completion. They want a complete set of everything. But this is a piss-take, and I can't condone it. I just This is disgraceful to put out to say the only way you can get this DVD is if you pay £150 for an album where some of the songs are already freely available anyway. I mean, it's just nuts. So I, you know, a lot of what they do is good and I like a lot of what they do, but their commerce, this thing about balancing art and commerce is insanity. It's just complete madness. I don't know what planet they're on. So... I have rebuttals for every single one of your points, Charlie. I'm sure you do. <laughs> and and, but and I think I'm going to try. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and explain this, you know, in a way that makes sense. So, your first point that you made uh, regarding the compilation and Purple Rain Deluxe. Actually, before I even before I even make that point, I want to make the point that for the first. A year and a half, two years after Prince passed, the estate and the set of people that were the estate is a completely different set of people than it is now. Uh, and if you ask the people who are running it now, would they have made some of those same decisions? I am convinced that they would say no. And part of the reason that that change happened was because there was questions about some of the decisions that had been made. So that's the first point. So when you talk about the Prince Forever compilation and the Purple Rain Deluxe compilation, these were not decisions that the prince estate the set of people at that time thought hey you know what this is a great idea let's do this no prince passed away with no 
will as far as the family knew. Um, that's that's a whole other debate that we could get into, but we won't go into that now. And it would have taken and did take a long time for there to be any movement in the myriad of back and forths between uh, the family and the estate people and the bank uh, and, you know, all the lawyers. And you know, it was ridiculous. And all the claims coming in from who this person and that person claiming to be his heir and I'm his secret daughter and this, that and the other. The reason that Prince Forever and Purple Rain Deluxe came out was because Prince had signed an agreement with Warner Brothers when he did the Artificial Age album to release exactly those two projects. This was known about before he died. He said in interviews, I'm going to let Warner's do another compilation and Purple Rain Deluxe. It's part of the agreement. So those came out because the agreement was there. It was solid. They had the rights to do it. If it wasn't for that, there would have been nothing released in any of the period in which you know, people were interested to listen more so than usual after his passing. So it, it wasn't because they thought this is a genius idea. I just want to make that very clear. Your second point was around the Versace experience and His Majesty's pop life. The reason those didn't chart is because they were given away as exclusives at Celebration and for Record Store Day months and months and months before the the wider distribution. So everybody that bought them already bought them. They already had them. So they were never going to chart. You know, maybe I don't know why Sony decided to give them wider distribution. Maybe they thought they'd sell a few more, but I don't think they expected it to chart because they knew that they'd already sold it to all the fans before. So whether that charted or not is really not something that's a super relevant point. As far as your point about the, I think you referred to it as a dusty cassette tape. Uh, in the video that we just put out, the uh, <laughs> sorry, I just <laughs> in the video that we just put out, the the Prince's Legacy five years later. There's a section in that video where I put out on Twitter saying, "What's meant the most to you in the past five years?" And we got something like a hundred responses to it, and I took seven of them or something like that and screenshotted them and put them in the video and you know had that back and forth with with different people. And the piano and a mic. 83 tape came up a lot of times just as much as anything else so while it may be a, a dusty pointless cassette tape to you that's not an opinion that is shared across the fan base there's not much more i can say about that other than that a lot of people like yeah it. but the fan base the fan base is not enough because it didn't chart well so they say they're trying to strike a balance between commerce and art yes, yes. and that what that should have been is that should have been in the purple rain box set because it's something that is trivial in and of itself, massively valuable to hardcore fans, yes, but of uh, no that's, particular that's point. wider value, right? That's, so That's a fair point, but the Purple Rain Deluxe box set was compiled and sequenced and part of the agreement when Prince was alive. They couldn't add something to it afterwards. Like, that was done. That deal was done. Prince oversaw the mastering. Josh Welton from Third Eye Girl, like, mastered it. Um, so that was done. Like they couldn't put that on there. And regardless, they didn't find that tape until at, way after that, when it was a whole new estate in charge. Well, they should have asked the fans because they've had it for like 30 years. It, the bootleg quality is not anywhere near the quality of what they released. I mean, you know, I, I can compare the two. It's night and day. But when I think the thing to remember, you know, I've, I've been in the music business my whole life. You know, I've had several major label deals. I was signed to Sony, I was signed to Virgin, I was signed to EMI, I've had independent deals. There's no money in physical releases. There just isn't. It doesn't matter if you're Michael Jackson. It doesn't matter if you're Prince, especially if you're a posthumous artist. You're not going to make a lot of money on those. You're going to make money on them by making a small quantity of them and selling them at a large price to complete this. That's the reality of the music business. 99.9% .9 of the people that want to hear that content will listen for free on Spotify and YouTube. 
that that's a fact it's why the mj estate does things that are in the same ballpark but with no artistic merit like releasing a 500 pound this is it box set that lights up right it's the same thing oh, God. so when uh when i think the estate talks about trying to balance art and commerce they're not expecting to make millions of dollars off any of these physical it's just not going to happen it doesn't matter how many people buy it it's just not going to happen but they can license uh, you know, let's go crazy to Capital One for an advert or Raspberry Beret to Dior, and they probably make a couple of million each time. They probably make more than those, more yeah, more than they've done from any of the physical music releases just by doing that, which is the same thing that the MJ Estate does by licensing Heal the World to a Chinese film that Detective, whatever it was, and except they don't do the other part. They, that's all they do. They don't put any of the music out. So on a basis of comparison, you've got two estates that can both make a lot of money licensing old songs to movies and games and whatever adverts, whatever else. But one of them actually puts music out that fans want, regardless of how many it sells. And the other one doesn't. I still have an issue with the pricing, though, because what you have with the MJ estate, and I'm, by the way, people know that I'm not a massive fan or defender of the MJ estate, but Essentially, Bad 25 and 1999 are the same thing. The difference is two discs, but in size, they're basically the same thing, and yet one cost about three times more than the other. There is no rational basis for that. They do overprice things, and the most recent one is egregious. It's totally indefensible to say if you want the DVD, you've got to pay £150 for eight new songs. That's nuts. It's not... Uh, it, they, they actually... Um... There is now wider distribution happening of what was originally a, a Japan-only exclusive, which has the CD and the Blu-ray. Um, you would probably still say that it's too expensive, but it is half the price of the box set. Originally, that was Japan-only. It is now getting wider distribution as far as I'm aware. So that appears to be as a result of you know, them listening to concerns about pricing. You know, there have been Your concerns are not just by you. you know, there are fans that have said some of the same things. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to dismiss your point there. But again, the reality is that the MJ Estate does the same thing. You know, okay, yeah, you could get Bad 25, the the box version for 40 quid or whatever it was. I seem to recall buying, spending about 300 quid on the briefcase version, which turned out to be nothing oh, like... Well, uh, more for you. Yeah, well, exactly. That, that, was my, that was my first mistake. But again, <laughs> they've, tried, they've tried similar things. But also... One more point, it is not eight new songs. It's 12 songs on the album. The three songs that were released elsewhere, they are very much not the same versions of the song that are on this release. They are at least two of them that I know are musically completely different from the versions he put out later. So there is that as well. Well, hopefully they're better because the ones that were released for free at the time do not inspire me to buy the album, let's Mm. say that. Um, I, I don't I don't disagree with either of you. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think uh, commerce looks different um, for each estate. And, and that's because, you know, there was a conversation that used to pop up once in a while on both the music club and the MPG underground forums that Michael is more popular and there's no argument there. And it would get a lot of Prince fans really angry. But it really does come down to, um, you know, commerce looks different for Michael than it does for Prince, and it, it always will. I, I, I think Michael's estate could be listening to the fans and, and putting out things that are more in line with what we want, whereas Prince, Prince's estate, I think, has done a great job on that. I think Casey's absolutely right that 
the Prince fan base is is very unique in that most of us are very hardcore. We don't listen to the hits. You know, we want the stuff that that was never available to us in the past and are willing to pay a higher price for it. Where with Michael's fan base, I think it, it's a very different it's a very different concept of what they're willing to pay for for things. And then when the MJ estate does release things, um, you know, the pricing is just is absurd that this is it box for $500 or whatever they were charging was probably one of the most tone deaf things they've done. No one asked for that. No one wanted that. So I not to take up too much time, but I, I think you both are, um, you know, your thoughts are not mutually exclusive. I think they're they're absolutely right. And I think there's there's lessons to be learned from on both estates. What I appreciate from the Prince estate is that they've acknowledged the fact that their success is is because the fans are supporting it and are buying the product and are coming and doing the tours. To me, there's been no acknowledgement from the Michael Jackson estate that the fans are what is the coal for their fire. And if if they're going to continue to ignore us, we're going to take our money elsewhere. And at some point, you know, all they'll be left with is licensing. Yep. Yeah. And, and the Michael Jackson estate, like famously, tend to make really odd decisions, like really, really odd decisions. The biggest ones that stand out to me, well, aside from the obvious Casio tracks and VHS bad concert, are probably th- things like the Halloween album they released. What was it called? Scream? Mm-hmm. That terrible DJ remix thing. One yeah. <laughs> that thing was terrible. But also, how on earth was that thing missing? Is it scary? Right. Yeah. Obvious, yeah, obvious. I mean, that. how was that not picked up? That just goes to show that there is a complete and utter lack of communication between the estate and, you know, prominent fans or Michael Jackson aficionados, uh, for lack of a better term, that could easily pick up those kind of um, quality control errors. That song absolutely should have been on there. It is really Michael's musical masterpiece when it comes to horror-themed songs. What's the deal with that? And also when, when when they do start to work on a project that fans actually want, like when they did, is, is it a 3D version or a remastered version of Thriller or whatever it was? Yeah. yeah they they, really they put it in a cinema before a movie for like two weeks and then we never heard about it again. And, that and was it like was three, spectacular. <laughs> that was, was like three years ago, right? Right. I never got to see it yeah. because I don't think that movie even came out in the UK or if it did, it certainly didn't have, you know, Thriller before it. So two weeks for uh, American fans, and then we'll just forget that we did that. It, just, it was spectacular. I'm yeah, sure, I'm sure. I'm sure. There are glimpses of greatness from the Michael Jackson estate. Thriller 3D is one of those things. The complete remastering of the the making of Thriller into high definition and premiering that at a, at a film festival is one of those things. Bad 25 conceptually was a great idea. The execution, not very, not, not so much, but they, they have shown that they've got the makings of an estate that can put out good products. It's the execution. That's absolutely terrible. And I think that's where, when Michael Jackson fans, they look at the Prince estate and we think, wow, you know, the people handling it there seem to have the execution really down pat and maybe not the pricing, and maybe not some of those things. But if the Michael estate could just take a leaf or 10 out of the Prince estate's book and try to get that execution a little bit better, what you said, Christina, really speaks to me a lot in that the Prince estate, there seems to be an inherent care and willingness to honor the fan community that supports 
Prince's legacy. The Michael Jackson estate, it could not feel more disconnected. I don't feel like they care at all about the Michael. In, in fact, I would say the opposite. I would say they are hostile towards mm. the Michael community. Mm. When we criticize their decisions, we are met with, you know, letters from their lawyers. I can't tell you how many emails I've sent to to Howard Weitzman and John Branker about, you know, things that are pretty important in terms of Michael's legacy and never hear back, never hear back. You just get an email back from their desk saying don't email them. Mm. And and con- conversely, I've sent emails to the Prince Estate about very minor errors like spelling of a, a city name on a shirt and they've said you know what we'll fix it and it's gone fixed mm. <laughs> and so it's the complete opposite but it's like i don't understand who is making some of these decisions at, at the mj estate and the, the complete lack of logic going into it pitbull on the remix who would think that this was a good thing to do who would think of getting timberland in to remix all these songs on escape when you know regardless of whether you like the idea of mj songs being remixed or not uh, and i'm going to mention it again because i really want it to come out and you'll hear what i'm talking about the, that remix that d'angelo did with the hot butt in the summertime is fucking mind-blowing it's like and then you listen to timberland's shitty remixes and you're like what the fuck is going on do these people not have ears that they can hear that one of these things sounds great and one of them doesn't it's just bizarre and yeah um, the other thing do you remember when they did that? I think it was Bad 25. The ticket replica had the wrong fucking date on it. Do you remember that? Am I the only one? That... <laughs> yeah. No, I don't remember right. that, but yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And then, like, how, first of all, how do you even, if it's a replica, how, do, how does it even get changed to where the date's wrong in the first place? And it's secondly, like harder to get that wrong. <laughs> exactly. And then there was no, there was no acknowledgement, I think, from them or something. But then... Six months later or eight months later or something, I got a random like letter in the mail with the corrected one just out of nowhere. (laughs) On a similar note, the one thing that that indicated, and I have no idea who was involved in selecting the photos that were engraved on the gigantic granite monument that stood in the front lawn at 2300 Jackson Street, but they included a photograph of E. Casanova. (laughs) And that is what told me in the very beginning, whoever is making these decisions does not know what they're doing. Oh boy. Well, it's complicated days, but hopefully this conversation has, has served a few purposes, but also um, just from Charlie's perspective, some interesting things um, there to take away for Michael fans that might think that everything's all roses over at the Prince Estate. Maybe not, but also Casey, your thoughts, I think have made it really clear to me at least, you know, how, how much ground could be made up by the Michael estate. We never got to talk about the fake memoir from the Prince estate, but maybe that's a whole other, <laughs> whole other uh, Charlie, issue. I didn't know you had thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the fake memoir from the Prince estate versus the opus from the Michael Jackson estate, which arrived incomplete and then the rest of it never showed up. Do you remember that? Yes. It was supposed to come with all this technology in it. And they sent a message saying, it will follow on. Don't worry. It's coming. All your technology. That's, it was supposed to bring the book alive or some bullshit. Of course, now that book is of no value to any fan at all because it's got a chapter by Wade Robson in it. Yeah. There was a Prince opus as well. It was done for the 21 Nights in London. And there was um, 
there was 10 that were signed by a prince and then about 900 that, that weren't. Uh, one of my friends actually just got one of the 10 signed ones, uh, paid a substantial amount of money for it, and is going to bring it around to my house for a, a, a viewing party. So <laughs> Signed, hang on, signed by who? Prince. That's incredibly unusual. He signed 10 of them, 10 of the 900 odd. It's a bit of a breach of protocol from Prince. I wonder yeah. what. I wonder how much they paid him to persuade <laughs> him to do that. That's like a holy grail. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think you know, I think my friend is going to let me film a video for YouTube. So so watch the space. <laughs> oh, excellent! Yeah, do a full unpacking. I'd love to see exactly. that. Exactly. Apparently, it weighs twelve point five kilograms. It's oh, a, so it's, it's about gigantic... the size of yeah, when the when the Opus showed up and the FedEx driver looked at me like, "What are you? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> what is happening here?" Yeah, it, it it's a bit ridiculous. All right, guys, I think this has been a really wonderful chat. Thank you so much for all of your contributions. Just before we wrap up, uh, Christina, where can people find you online if they want to see your commentary on all things Prince and Michael Jackson? Yeah, um, definitely. So um, I don't, I'm not on social media very often, but you can find me on Twitter at Velo Christina um, and uh, Instagram as well at Velo Christina. Fantastic. And Casey, what about your accounts and, and the Violet Reality as well? Yes. So uh, Twitter is my main hangout spot, I guess, day to day social media, twitter.com forward slash Casey Rain. And then uh, our channel is youtube.com forward slash the Violet Reality. Um, we upload a handful of videos every month. Our current series, we're going through each one of Prince's albums chronologically to kind of uncover the deep, the deep facts that are, it's called the facts you didn't know. So we're really trying to dig deep into each record. We've done about 20 so far, I think, and we're still only just getting started. So yeah, lots to watch. I really admire your work ethic. You know, the amount of great content, high quality content you guys are able to put out is really uh, something that I envy. Oh, <laughs> uh, the feeling is mutual. Oh. <laughs> all right, Charlie, where can people find you, buddy? I think all your listeners have already got me blocked, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, especially after last episode. Jesus, I'm going to need some therapy after seeing those replies come in. Yeah, Charlie, they... <laughs> you came in hot on that last episode. <laughs> I don't understand what people are complaining about. I don't, I really don't. I didn't think it was very negative. Oh, I loved it. I, the the Bob Hope doing sexy MF was my favorite anecdote <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Well, it wasn't an anecdote. It was more of a, an imagining. But yeah, what was I talking about? Oh, it was Michael doing We Be Balling You or something, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Break of Dawn, I believe it was what prompted that. I still think that's a good song. I love it. Me too. Ah, <laughs> consensus, 75% consensus in the room. <laughs> okay, let me just do this for you. You can find our wonderful and positive and amazing and lovely contributor today, Charlie Thompson, on Twitter at C.E. Thompson without the P. I think, as you like to say. Also, he is tweeting a lot more now from the MJ cast. Speaking of which, um, you can find the MJ cast on lots of places online. We are at themjcast.com. That's our website and repository for all of our podcast material. You can find us at the MJ cast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We are primarily a podcast, so we'd love it if you could subscribe over on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify Overcast or, or lots of different podcast apps we are on youtube as well we are not video first like 
uh, the amazing Violet Reality who have great, great looking videos. We're audio first, um, but we do put our podcasts up on YouTube anyway for people who prefer to listen that way. We'd love it if you could go ahead and subscribe, rate and review us on any of those platforms that you would like to. Uh, I, I, for one, have really loved our conversation today. I just want to say thank you so much, uh, Christina, for coming on the show. It's your first time on the MJ cast, hopefully many more to come. I've really, really appreciated you being on here. Uh, Casey, thank you again for returning to the MJ cast after I think four and a half years. Uh, for listeners who want to hear your first appearance, they can go back and listen to our double episode release of, I think it was the Prince and Michael Jackson Roundtable, which really digs into Michael and Prince's different artists, but still great artists. Uh, and Charlie, of course, thank you for returning uh, to the MJ cast for your, I don't know, how many episodes would you have been on now? I don't know. Your listeners think it's too many. <laughs> no, it's a, a very vocal minority on um on Twitter. That's true. It's not I representative. Am, I'm officially the number one guest host. So Do you want me to get you a badge? Pay rise, pay rise. That'll that'll do it. You can put a photo of the badge on your brand new Instagram. <laughs> At Father Charlesmas. folks so twitter is always it seems like a yearly cycle where everyone just chills prince and michael fans get along for like a year and then once a year everyone freaks out for some reason (laughs) and has to be in camp michael or camp prince what is this we are all fans of both artists first of all like what what do we like about both artists and why can't everyone just get along i think people get suckered into media hype I think that's what it is. You know, I've I've talked to journalists who covered Michael and Prince in the late from the late seventies, early eighties, pretty much since the start of, of Prince's career, and they've admitted that they basically forced that narrative to sell magazines. Like that's that's just the case, and it's still is clearly a very effective strategy because it's still going to this day. People are kind of hardwired to think in binary terms, like it either has to be this thing or this thing. Biggie or Tupac or, you know, Nirvana or Pearl Jam or, you know, even politics, right? It's a two-party system, you know, we're just wired into this bullshit binary thinking. I I think we should challenge it at every opportunity and just be like me and love both or like all of us on the show, right? There's nothing to stop you doing that. There is nothing wrong with, with loving both. I think the problem is with the Michael fan community is that, uh, they can't some people can't cope with you saying prince was better at part of something you know i will freely say michael was a better vocalist than prince he was he had a bigger range he had more power to his voice as a recording artist you know prince could not record vocals like for example the earth song uh ad-libs or the keep the faith ad-libs michael was the stronger vocalist michael clearly was the more adept and technically brilliant dancer 
of the two. Prince was a great vocalist and a great dancer, but Michael was the better dancer. And they have no problem with me saying that. But when I say, but Prince was better at this, all of a sudden I get the fucking hairdryer treatment and you hate her. <laughs> you, how dare you? You're just a Prince lover. You hate Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what i've had all week that is what i've had all week well it's 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 crazy so, because you know google put out a uh, statistics thing or something and it, it turned out that uh prince's solo from uh the rock and roll hall of fame when he did while my guitar gently weeps uh is the most searched guitar solo of all time right and you know i'm not i'm not expecting that that Michael would have the most searched guitar solo of all time because he didn't play the guitar, right? And I'm equally, I'm not expecting that, you know, a, a video of, of Prince doing some dancing would get millions of hits, like, you know, compilations of MJ dancing. Like, it's just, you know, you just have to respect the things that both artists were good at and their differences. That's what, that's what makes it interesting, right? If they were both equally brilliant at equally the same things, then they'd just be the same person. It's, wouldn't be interesting then the fans would be screaming that they were copying each other <laughs> and and i've often thought that the, the reason behind this comparison if they had been if they had hit their peak at in different times we probably wouldn't be having this conversation um i think the fact that they they both you know we had the kind of the trifecta of prince and michael and madonna in the 80s and that's you know that that's what i grew up on those that was the soundtrack to my high school years we wouldn't be having this conversation and this constant, I think, back and forth between the fan bases if they had been at their peak in different times. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, we've always kind of joked that Michael made you want to be romanced. Prince made you want to take your clothes off. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I, I can see that in the the switch that happened in, in people my age of, you know, Thriller came out. And, you know, for, for people my age, that was kind of like the first album that was ours. It wasn't our parents' album. It was like ours. And then Purple Rain happened. And if you were about that right age, you kind of, you know, Michael was like boyfriend material and Prince was something completely different. And, you know, as you're, you're a teenager and you're, you're trying to find your own sexuality and your own freedom, I think Prince was an outlet for a lot of people, um, you know, especially for my friends in the LGBTQ community, Prince made sense to them. They could see themselves in, in his freedom and, and, um, and music where, you know, Michael was, was different and I'm not saying one was better than the other. I love them both. I think they both contributed in ways that we could never be grateful enough um, mm -hmm. for everything that they contributed artistically from a, a humanitarian aspect. You know, I agree completely um, from, from the musicianship, Prince is unparalleled in his ability to play all those instruments, to produce his own records. Um, you know, Prince didn't need anybody. He was, he was all on his own from the, from the very beginning. You know, Michael is unmatched when it comes to, um, you know, his vocal performances, his dance. You know, they both were very humanitarian. And because I'm in nonprofit, you know, that's something that was was very impactful to me professionally um, was all the work that Michael had done on a humanitarian level. 
Prince was doing that as well too, but people didn't really know about it. He did it very quietly. And since he's passed, you know, more things have come to light and more people realize that he was really reinvesting in his community. Um, you know, he was doing a lot of that humanitarian work, but to me, there's no comparison. And I think you find more of that, that anger and, and Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're probably getting that more from the Michael Jackson fan base where there's like this immediate level of anger um, where the Prince fan base is maybe a little older. We're, we're, we're not interested in getting involved in these arguments. I think it's definitely more from the Michael community. I certainly have encountered people of a similar attitude on the Prince side, but they're far fewer and further between. It's just a, sort of like a, a bombardment. But then, you know, I'm coming at this from a perspective of having been on the MJ cast. Maybe if I went on a Prince podcast and was talking about Michael being a better vocalist than Prince, then maybe I would be receiving a similar tidal wave of abuse this week. I don't know. There's your next video, Casey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not touching that one. Oh boy. To me, from looking uh, as a fan, a hardcore fan of MJ and somebody who's becoming a bigger fan of Prince, to me, the friction and argument seem to hover around the live performer aspect on Twitter. It's, you know, even Barry Gordy said at Michael Jackson's funeral that Michael Jackson was the greatest entertainer that ever lived. And I think a lot of Michael Jackson fans just just think that. They just think, well, there's no comparison. Uh, The bad tour, whatever. Michael was simply the best. He put the best show on that's ever been. He sang it live. All the dancing's incredible. You know, hit after hit after hit. It's amazing. And then Prince fans seem to take issue with that and might say something like, well, yeah, but there was, you look across the whole spectrum of Michael's career and there was a lot of lip syncing going on. There was a lot of, you know, really, like we said last on the last show, Charlie, Michael really only put together uh, the format of, say, you know, three or so tours and just sort of replicated that across his whole career. Whereas Prince, it was like almost every show was different. Um, completely just jamming with his his band on stage, different night after night, wherever the music wanted to take them. To a lot of people, uh, that is real showmanship or real musicianship, I should say, in a live sense. And so there's almost like a different, uh, I guess, criteria or a different definition of what it is to be an entertainer, where on one side, people look at like the spectacle of a Michael Jackson show, the almost like a a magic show, you know, Mm. or, and then on the other side, the definition is someone who's versatile and able to change it up and do everything completely authentically. I see where that's, there's a lot of friction there. I was lucky enough to see both of them live. I saw the history tour and I I saw Prince, I think 14 times was, was my count. And every single Prince show was different, completely different from, from the other ones. Sometimes he would drop in just completely unreleased songs that only probably like five people in the crowd knew. Right. But to those people, it was just the most special experience when he would do things like that. And when I saw the history tour, it was more like, this is amazing because I am seeing Michael Jackson. But if I, you know, if he had done this is it, how even the most hardcore fan who decided to buy, let's say, all 50 tickets to every show right at some point, whether it's the third show or the fourth show or the fifth show, you know exactly what's going to happen every second it's it's it becomes gradually less interesting when you're seeing the exact same thing over and over again 
I, I couldn't agree more. And Casey, a, the great, a great case in point was 777, was July 7th of 2007, mm-hmm. where Prince played three shows in one day and nearly killed his fan base in the process. <laughs> were, you, were you there in Minneapolis? I unfortunately was not there at that time, but uh, well, similar yeah. experiences in, in <laughs> similar experiences in London for the hit and run uh, shows. And so you you know what that's like. And I mean, mm. you know, Prince went. He played um, in Macy's, so he did mm. a very very small venue um, in the department store. Then went to the Target Arena um, and did a full arena show, and then played First Avenue as the after show for the first time since Purple Rain. Of course, you know, three, with the exception of those of us that were, you know, absolute idiots and had to go to all three shows, because how do you not go to all three shows? They were very different audiences and and very different performances, all within a 24-hour period. I unfortunately did never, never saw Michael um, perform live. So I don't really have a, a comparison there, but I'd have to agree from all of the concert shows that I've watched. Um, and Charlie and Jamie, you kind of touched on this in the last episode that if you've seen a bad concert, you've seen pretty much all of the bad concerts and the same thing for, for history and, and the, you know, ab- abruptly short, dangerous tour. I mean, this, this is, this goes back to what I said right at the beginning about, you know, being a victim of his own success and, and feeling like that was all that he could do, right? Like, mm-hmm. <sighs> Why could you not just do a one night special where you sit down and do like an MTV unplugged kind of thing and sing like human nature with just acoustic guitar or like, who is it? Or, you know, Absolutely. Why oh my God, I would have paid like every, every pound in my bank account to see that. If he had done something like during the music hall, Prince's musicology tour during the acoustic set, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that to me would be heaven to have. And I think, wasn't it Michael Prince said in one of the documentaries, you know, you could put this guy under a spotlight with a piano player and it would be magic. Exactly. And I, I often wondered if, if because Michael came up through Motown and under Joseph that his concept of putting on a performance and, you know, uh, an adventure for him meant rolling out the tanks and the glitter bombs and the fireworks. Mm. And Prince did that to some extent, you know, during like Love Sexy is probably the only tour I can think of where, you know, he had a lot of stage props and some crazy stuff going on. But for the most part, it was really just the musicianship of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what really stands the test of time. There's that's when I'm finding, you know, 20 years in to being a Michael Jackson fan is and and fans on Twitter freak out when I say this. But the honest truth is, well, I'm certainly not bored of Michael's music in any sense. But yeah, I've seen those shows a lot on YouTube at this point. And it's kind of like, I got a lot to dig into with Prince now, which I'm looking forward to. For me, it kind of frustrates me so much as a Michael fan, because and this is an answer we still really haven't been able to dig into and get on the MJ cast through talking to collaborators, and I still want to accomplish this one day. But Michael could do these things like we're talking about, you know, like Mm. this sitting under the spotlight, singing acoustic stuff. He could have done that. You listen to the um, rehearsal of She's Out of My Life at MJ and Friends, which he sung live in rehearsal but then chose not to do in the set. You listen to the rehearsals for MTV 95 and he's singing Rock With You completely live and it sounds as beautiful as he sung it in uh, On Off The Wall. I don't understand. I, I truly have not got the answer and I do not understand why Michael didn't 
drop some of those things into these sets when he was doing such lip sync heavy sets because he could sing at that time and beautifully as shown mm-hmm. in rehearsals. So I don't, I don't get it. I still don't get it. I wonder if it's a, a, a kind of self-doubt, like detachment from yeah. his own art, mm-hmm. because let's be honest, if he had, if he had announced this is it and said, this is half acoustic and, you know, it's not a big stage production, it's about the music and here's the band members and it would it wouldn't have been any less popular. It would have yeah, sold right. exactly, you know. But he just felt like he had to do this, the big spectacle, and that's just not the case. Like you, you didn't have to. In fact, it would have been better if you didn't. You know, I wonder if that goes back to you know how shy he was off stage, mm-hmm. and that he it, that that's putting himself in a in a very vulnerable position to then be in a maybe in a smaller venue without all of the the glitter and the lights and and extras. Yeah. yeah, and and I, I think there's something to that, and I, and I also think that maybe he didn't really have any concept in 1997 when he was on the road doing the history tour of YouTube that these shows. I mean, I think he may have felt like that these shows were under lock and key, like he, you know, he had the filming rights, all of that kind of stuff. I don't think he knew that History Tour Munich was going to be the only high definition concert available on YouTube in 2021 his live legacy really on YouTube. (laughs) I do think that there's an element of, um, of self doubt or of uh, lack of confidence in his own abilities. And I think you see that evolve through his stage performances where he becomes sort of increasingly detached. There was a lady that said this on Twitter today and she's getting flamed from all directions by fans today, but she, um, she basically said that Michael was, she said she went to a Michael concert and it was amazing. What an evil bitch. She said it was amazing, but, um, but that he was detached. And of course the fans have gone bananas and started attacking her from all angles, but he was detached. You know, if you look at the dangerous tour, he arrives on stage, uh, stands there like a statue with his sunglasses on. That's he's not connecting with the audience really there. He's sort of inviting them to scream at the wall you know to scream at to scream at him but he's not engaging with them in any meaningful way and i think you do see that more is more and more with this sort of military dictatorial style even with the history statue where he's got the bullets strapped around his chest it and, and sort of emulating the uh, the dangerous jacket it was all very kind of um sort of portraying himself as almost like an icon and, and not as a human being. And I think there was a, a vulnerability there and that he was frightened of, of letting people in in any meaningful way. The, the, interesting thing, the interesting thing about that, Charlie, is that the way to break out of that is to just say, I'm, I'm not going to keep repeating myself. Like Prince said that he fell into that trap in the Purple Rain tour because he felt like people came to see the movie and that he had to do the same show every night of yeah. the same order of the songs. And he said... And he was detached by the end of that tour. He admitted it himself and said, I'm never doing this again. And that's what led to, you know, this, this kind of improvisation and we'll do figure out the set list, you know, right before we go on stage or during the show or whatever. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think, you know, Michael was never able to, to break out of that. And that, that is going to lead to detachment. Like that's just a fact. I saw Eminem post eight miles, like one year after eight miles. So the peak of his popularity in uh, Milton Keynes, he was not, he was not present. He was physically present. His yeah. mind was not there. His eyes were blank the whole time. 
and I've seen uh, Beyonce and Usher I've seen who are exactly like that as well. It was yeah. basically like watching a hologram or something. Yep. You didn't mm. even feel like they were in the room. They stood mm. right in front of you, and but it was like they might as well have not been there. Yeah. Could we say, on conversely, looking across to the print side now, we've pointed out quite a number of Michaels. Uh, we've criticised Michael a fair bit there, but if we look across to print, you know, could we say that his um, almost never-ending versatility and one project after the other, constant projects, it, was that frequency, you know, did that detract from perhaps an artistic focus on creating like a perfect product or a perfect song like Michael had, you know, that resulted in so much chart success. Was there ever much frustration as a Prince fan in that, a lack of focus on maybe creating a perfect product and marketing and then seeing eventual commercial success? I think if you had to balance it up with waiting longer between Prince releases, most people would probably say no. But I think it manifested itself more in maybe missed opportunities for him around certain projects. So for example, you know, Purple Rain Tour never came to Europe because uh, he was done with it, right? You know, he could have built on that success a little bit more if he had wanted to. Uh, equally, you know, other tours that did really well in Europe didn't go over to the the States um, and, and he would move on very quickly. There were missed opportunities uh, for him to be more commercially successful. But in his from his point of view, it came at the cost of, his creativity and being able to move on the, as quickly as, as he wanted to. I think it was very inspiring that he didn't really believe in this concept of, of perfect. He just believed in the idea and getting it out. He would record songs and there would be uh, problems with the engineering that res resulted in distortion on the songs. And he would say, well, that's how it was meant to be and move on to the next one. And those are, you know, classic songs. Uh, nobody's yeah, you complaining can't imagine about Michael things. thinking that. You can't no. imagine Michael thinking that. No, <laughs> not at all. It did get to a kind of ridiculous point sometimes where projects were just like, you know, gone before they even started, right? So like some of these unreleased albums are subject to that. Um, tw the 2010 album uh, never came out in, in the States uh, because, you know, the distribution took too long and he got bored and started doing something else. So it, it, in a sense, it is a double-edged sword. But when you look at the amount of material, it's it's hard to view it as anything other than somebody just doing, being completely free, which was his main thing. It's like, I'm free to do what I want. Mm -hmm. So I have a whole lot of frustration around being a Prince fan. And some of it is is in line with what you were just talking about. Um most of it comes from, I reached a point where I was done chasing Prince around um, yeah. because his level of spontaneity and creativity had reached a point where he was endlessly exasperating his friend, his fans by, oh, I don't know, like around noon, he would drop a track online. And by the time I would get home from work, he'd already deleted it. Yeah. Or he would announce, I will never forget, I was in New York on work. And he announced on either the org, Casey, you probably remember this if you were around back then, mm. find fuzzy and this, <laughs> right. You remember find fuzzy. So I'm in New York and I have, this is before the days of smartphones. So I was trying to do everything via org private message 
when I could get um, cell coverage of Prince was going to do a rooftop show at one of the hotels in New York City, but he wasn't going to tell anybody. During Mm. the course of the day, he was releasing clues as to where it might be. And I got to the point where I was like literally in tears trying to figure out where he was. Was this so the there, one that ended up being a, a Gansevoort hotel? Yes, was it that one? <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. So I have a lot of bitterness, a lot of bitterness, <laughs> if you can tell around that. But by um, by 2009 or so, um, so you know, I reached a point where I, I was struggling with keeping separate Prince the the person and Prince the musician, um, and you know, I'm very close friends with, with Sam and the way things ended there. Um, it just, it really made me, you know, Prince was an, an incredible musician and a genius, um, but he didn't always treat the people around him very well. Mm. And this is common knowledge. This isn't anything yeah. that, um, you know, is, is, is private. Um, you know, he didn't always, and the same thing with Michael, um, you know, the, the people that really genuinely cared about them and their success were often let go and, mm. and cut loose. So around 2009 or so, I I was really kind of had had it with Prince. And I was living in Los Angeles when he came out and did the shows in 2011. I didn't didn't go to a single one. And I regret that now, of course, because, you know, back then you thought you had forever. And uh, I was back in Chicago when he did the the, um, piano and a microphone shows at Paisley Park. And I didn't go. And, you know, that's probably my biggest regret. But, um, you know, Prince was infamous for frustrating the hell out of his fans by oh, yeah. you know oh, yeah. doing this it was kind of it, stuff. It, it, it was a running joke i mean do you remember the the quote-unquote lifetime membership to lotusflower.com <laughs> <laughs> that that could be a whole other episode about how yeah. he owes me the $77 for a defunct website and a t-shirt. I got my t-shirt, but I uh, got my t-shirt. I sold it later. <laughs> lifetime membership that lasted uh, exactly one year, I think. As I recall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's just say Michael Jackson fans have had a taste of that as well. Remember MJJ Sauce? Oof. 